Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm your guest host, Simon Nameby, and today I'm doing a deep dive with William Wayland. William is a strength and conditioning coach and gym owner based in Essex, and today we're going to be talking about various topics around coaching grassroots rugby teams and his work with professional athletes and uh, a deep dive into various areas of philosophy and and the the dark corners of strength and conditioning. So good, good morning, William. How are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Uh, currently enjoying the UK's four-week lockdown. We're just over halfway through, so uh, we're nearly out the other side. How, how's that been for you? It must be very tough, obviously, owning a facility. It's, um, it's, it's been a very tough time, isn't it? Yeah, small gym owners have, have uh, you know, had a short shrift this time. There's not much help from the government, but um, we're adapting as best we can. Uh, we're doing, you know, Zoom calls with our with our uh, with our clients, and um, you know, trying to work at, make it work via correspondence. And we're obviously still allowed to train elite athletes to some extent, but for the majority of people, it's back to home workouts and uh, you know, uh, correspondence programming. So uh, it's not ideal, but uh, let's see what see what happens once December second rolls down, and we can actually uh, go back to opening our gyms and where we'll be. Yeah. Definitely. Fingers crossed. I think that that will be something we'll talk about a little bit later because I think um, uh, tight constraints can can uh, create a lot of uh, creativity or can can allow you to have a lot of creativity. And I, I think you've been doing some really fantastic work around that. So we'll probably talk about that a bit later. But um, if you just want to give everyone a little bit of a rundown of your background and how you got into S&C and, and what you're currently doing. Sure. So um, I currently run a, a private strength and conditioning facility, a, a boutique boutique gym for lack of a better term in uh, in Essex called, called Power and Through Performance um, and we've been there for three years but in terms of uh, sort of my background and where I came from uh, I was uh, uh, on a talent athlete scholarship scheme for taekwondo I studied sports science at the, at the University of, uh, of Teesside which is you know Middlesbrough is not the, the best place in the world but uh, you know the university is actually a pretty good sports science university and, and some of my my former lecturers and that are actually now working sort of FA and other places. So it was a, you know, I, I was very pleased to be sort of educated by a good team um, there. And uh, after that, I bounced around. Um, I worked with the American football team there. I worked with, uh, you know, various athletes from all sorts of different sports. Um, the whole time I funded funded my education so as a personal trainer. I started personal training in 18. So you know, I got a taste of, of corporate fitness and the fact that I, I never want to work in corporate fitness ever, ever again after that experience, you know, throughout university. Um, and then I've lived in various places around the UK as well. I was in Guildford. Um, uh, you know, that, that was quite a contrast moving from Middlesbrough to, to, to Surrey, you know, two very different places. And, and um, sport, I taught sports science for a while. So uh, I, I, I did that. And then decided the education route wasn't for me you know and uh, it, it made me more more disdainful of, of, of academics a little bit and um yeah it was uh and it was a weird path of taking i lived in korea for a year worked at a private school um and then i came back to the uk and was like right if i'm gonna try and make a go of this i've got to make a go of this and 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 um you know worked with kept kept working kept saving and then finally had enough seed money to, to open my own facility and and yeah, it's it's like it's been an unconventional route uh, in, into strength and conditioning, but um, you know, eventually it sort of made it there. After you know, I'm not going to lie, there was even a point in time where uh, you know I was I was in the in the dole office, so I was seeking job seekers. You know, that was not long after I finished university. You know, I had ideas that I walked straight into a into a strength and conditioning job, and there I was in the dole line. But the whole time, in the back of my mind I was like, I've got to, you know, I've I've got to put the time in and work at this and, and get to where I want to be. And now. 
you know, uh, we've been had parameter performance as a, as, a, as a physical place for the last three and a half years. So and now, uh, you know, I work with with UFC fighters, superbike riders. Um, I'm a consultant for the PGA European Tour. I work with some of the best golfers in the world. So, you know, um, if I could just you know, think about just just grab myself in that in that job seekers queue and say, don't worry. You know, in in fifteen twenty years, it'll it'll work out. You know, and but at that that point in time, you just sort of despair a little bit. But occasionally, I pinch myself, and it's like actually, I'm in a really really good position right now. It is it is quite tough, isn't it? <clears throat> We've started our own business here, and the the pain and strife that you go through at the time is like when it actually starts to happen, and you start to to operate, and it starts to go well. You. you you are just waiting constantly for the next thing to go wrong <laughs> because you've had such a tough time. It was quite a good uh, quote from David Mitchell. They asked him what he would tell his younger self. And uh, it, it, he was saying, I would tell my young not to worry, but maybe if I did that, I wouldn't be where I am now because it's the worry that sometimes drives you on and, and makes you be successful. He, he was a lot funnier than, than I just was there. <laughs> but, um, uh, so uh, part of... Um, one, one of the aspects of uh, of your facilities, you're working with uh, Rugby Club, is that correct? That's right, that's right. So I, 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 I work with Chelmsford Rugby Club, uh, who I think are now in London too. This last season's obviously been a mess, so no yeah. one no one's really sure if they're <laughs> coming or going. So, uh, but the first first year I worked with them, um, they won their division, which was which was great. You know, um, you know, I'm not sure how much of of, of what I was doing could be, uh, you know, could be involved in that victory, but it was nice to get a get a, get a division win in the first um, in the first season. And uh, yeah, they're they're a, they're a good, fairly fairly competitive, uh, you know, uh, local rugby team. And um, they they came to us. It must have been three years ago, looking for for a strength and conditioning solution. Um, and from there the relationship kind of kind of grew and we gave them um initially sort of like a uh, a sort of taster of the type of things we do with them and then um because the other thing is obviously being a local level rugby team these guys have jobs they they um are utterly committed to their club but obviously finances are short and it's a case of where the players kind of almost have to elect to come themselves so we have um you know a good bunch of the men's team and a good bunch of the women's team Obviously, we're understanding for those who can't make it. So we offer a program that they can follow in their own time if they've got a gym membership somewhere else. So we try and facilitate a little bit. But there's a sort of core component of that team that's quite dedicated to coming to the gym. And, and you know, we, we set up different systems for them so they can be, the, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're a business. You know, we, we um, need to, to at least cover our overhead. So those guys either pay or and this is an awkward truth of, of, of like local level private S&C. Too many guys are wanting to do it for nothing. I kind of put my foot down and said, we're not going to do it for nothing. That's not how we can operate. And at the end of the day, if you can come to a good deal with a local gym, with a rugby team, you know, and find out something that works mutually very well for both of you, you know, because uh, one of the toughest conversations I find a lot of guys have is talking about money and, and making sure that, that uh, you know, if you are a local S&C coach, you know, don't, don't do it for free. You devalue yourself that way. Um, I'm always of the opinion that at least have a bottom line that you're not willing to go uh, underneath. So once we got the awkwardness of, of how it's all paid for uh, out of the way, we we started working and we were doing it in like 10 week blocks. And they were so they were pretty thrilled after the first 10 week block. And we've been do, doing it ever since. And uh, these guys who come in and then dropped out for various reasons, but the same sort of core group of guys have now been coming for at least two years. 
and uh, they definitely see a difference. Their coach sees a difference. Um, their coaches come down from time to time to see what we're doing. Again, they're busy people too. And uh, yeah, we're pretty pleased with the sort of the, the system of sorts we've got set up, and it works quite well. Um, and and the only thing is, I just wish we had more of the girls come, but uh, they've got they've got their reasons because I I quite like working with them too. Yeah, that's quite different. Perhaps we'll come to that a bit later. Gave them a taster to show them what you're about. And obviously you've got the facility as well. But I think that's a really important point because at the lower levels of rugby, there's varying degrees of support. I mean, like I've been to various different county or teams and you'll go and talk to the boys who I'm doing a session with them. And like they'll be, oh, I'm really, really sore. My, uh, my coach got... Uh, a kettlebell trainer that works at the gym in and we would do, and they tell you what you were doing. They're like, yeah, okay. No wonder you're really sore because you've just done about a thousand kettlebell swings, never having picked up a kettlebell in your life. And there's a real variance in, um, in quality of information and quality of training at, at the lower levels. And so I think particularly someone such as yourself with a facility, it's really worth investing in that because then they get a, an assurance of, level of education, of quality of equipment, that kind of thing. So I, I really like the idea of, of giving them a taster and them seeing the value in that. Um, and then and then it sort of speaks for itself, doesn't it? And if they're paying individually, it, it can be quite affordable. I also quite like the fact that you, you offer different varying vari packages so they can either come to the facility or train on their own. So um, how was that for you? Uh, I didn't, you didn't mention rugby at all personally. So have you ever played rugby? No, I've never played rugby myself. You know, apart from uh, sec secondary school, where you get forced yeah. to, to put on a, you know, one of those awful cotton jerseys and <laughs> yeah. run around at sort of zero degrees Celsius. Yeah. Everybody remembers that, you know, and the grounds yeah. like the grounds like rock. Um, yeah. But apart from that, no, I've no, I've, I've never played. Um, I've never played. I do appreciate. Obviously, I'm involved. I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I, you know, I have a, a, I guess, an implicit understanding of collision sport. So um you know there's there's a there's something there sort of mutually i can understand what it's like to be to be sore and and and, and stiff yeah. and stuff after training sessions you know and, had, and then working around that so so how did you approach that um when they first came to you what what was your sort of process and what sort of things were you prioritizing with with that team when they first came to you say okay yeah we want to train with you what, what was your thought process so the, the first time they basically we had to to take a look at them and 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 we did do some we did do some testing um we did some uh isometric mid thigh pull and counter movement jump testing uh, just to see where they were and i tell you what surprised me because obviously counter movement jump uh mid thigh pull very easy test to run and run sort of a quick batch put people through you know i'm lucky to have force platforms so we could do that and what surprised me is how actually you know despite their their, their own perception that they're strong they were actually kind of weak and that really surprised me, um, you know, so these guys came up with sort of middling strength levels, which I was like, well, that's one thing that definitely needs to be better. Then the other thing, as soon as we started the session, getting them warming up, seeing them move on the floor. Um, and it, yeah, again, it was like these guys have a really low level of sort of movement variability. They're not very mobile. Um, you know, it was like a room full of OAPs, how much they were moaning. We were giving them the most basic of, of mobility drills, you know, just to get warm for the for, for the for the mid-thigh pull and, and counter movement jump testing. So we did that first because what we want, obviously, was get, to get a baseline. And then once we did our 10-week block, we have an objective uh, measure at the end as well, just to show some 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 change. And it was mainly for that as the reason why we did it. Um, but even then part of me was like, maybe I don't need to test them because these guys are, are obviously not fit or strong. 
um, you know, the reasonable level of obviously rugby fitness um, and and sort of just from, from, from training that two days a week or wherever it is they do. And then they sort of, I guess they must just about be enough to make it through a game day. And, um, you know, these guys are training twice a week, some of them only once a week, uh, you know, because that's, that's, that's what their schedule allows for. And the other thing is, you know, our, our intervention was minimal. We were only doing one day a week with them and then programming them extra days a week if they wanted to do that. So we had to make sure that one day a week was our best bang for our buck. You know, what's the, the best we could get out of them on this day that would carry them, you know, um, leading up to the weekend. And because uh, initially we started off um, during the off season. So that was that was we had the benefit of being able to push them a little harder. But yeah, like, and then that first program was very, very simple. Um, we didn't do much more than, than, than show them how to squat properly, show them how to bench properly, some trap bar deads and, and uh, a whole bunch of, of sort of accessory work for, for neck and, and core. And it wasn't much more than that. Um, you know, we had to keep it very, very simple because the temptation is to sort of get fancy and try and show off what they could be doing. But, but we went in sort of a very low level and, and kept it very, very simple. And uh, what sort of things were they doing in their uh, sessions away from the club? I'm assuming there would be a variety of training at home and training at commercial gyms where you, you probably don't know quite what they've got. Yeah, it was, it was basic strength work. So basically all I did, because uh, it was the off-season, I gave them a simple three-day program. And the, basically the, the hardest day, the heaviest day was with, with, with us to make sure that we could monitor everything and people weren't lifting with poor form or, or things like that. Because again, these guys, a lot of them, needed to be taught how to lift properly. So that was a big focus of what we were doing. And then the other days were, we, you know, a, a basically sort of that vertical integrated approach of, 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 of trying to train multiple qualities at, at, at uh, you know, various emphases. So uh, the ones, for instance, basically there was the, that simple split as well, um, you know, that you see in rugby, that the fronts needed more speed and the backs needed more strength. And and it was almost almost laughably how they both fell into those two categories when we tested them. When you when you get your DSI score, and um, you know it was like, well, that was kind of I could have done that without testing them. You know, say right, you guys need to be faster, you guys need to get stronger, and that's how we tailored the program. Basically, we split them into two groups: the, the fronts and the backs. So just explain DSI quickly for those yeah. who don't know, and and how you sort of work that out and what you do with that practically. Sure, sure. So, so DSI is basically a peak isometric mid-thigh pull and then a peak counter-movement jump. And it's basically the ratio of those two versus each other. So obviously your peak isometric mid-thigh pull is, is the top number. And then your counter-movement jump is always a percentage of, of that peak force production. Um, so for instance, if uh, your uh, DSI comes in at under 60%, that generally means you need to do more um, ballistic type training. Uh, if it's between 60 and 80%, it means a balanced training approach is probably suggested. And then if you're over 80%, it generally means that your counter movement jump and peak mid thigh pull are very close together, meaning that you need to raise that ceiling, you need to get stronger. Um, and that's rough, roughly how, how DSI works. And it's a very simple way of, um, of figuring out, uh, you know, roughly what type of training focus an athlete should take so it's just sort of a it's almost like you breaking out a compass and figuring out what direction you kind of need to move in and that's that's what i like in dsi too and for for group testing it's a very useful tool for figuring out who needs to do what you know roughly speaking and then you you use those scores to ban people into three different yeah. types of program and then you you can program that out and i think that's a really interesting uh aspect of snc at, at that level is exactly what you say is 
so you, you generally don't need to test these people. You can, t- like, as a reasonably experienced S&C coach, you can sort of look at people and go, yeah, well, <laughs> we know exactly what needs to be done here. But I think there's a couple of things around it is because you are trying to create a buy-in there, which is, you know, a very popular sort of phrase at the moment. So the boys turn up, they they do the test, which is, to coin a phrase, I think it was Dr. Martin Toms used it, it's, it's a machine that goes ping. But so, you know, they go in, they do the test. It feels quite professional to do it. They get a score, which actually does help you to program. But then the most important thing that I, I think you said there was that then you can prove what has happened to them because, yeah, they might feel a little bit stronger. They might feel a little bit bigger, a little bit faster. But a lot of it at that level goes on feel and your feel can be very, very wrong often. Yeah. And so to be able to give them hard numbers to show them, I, I would imagine that was key in getting them to buy in because you said you gave them a little taster. And then, you know, that's developed a really good relationship. Is, is that sort of sort of how that worked? Yeah, that's kind of what exactly what we're aiming for. I think because, you know, uh, with with rugby coaching, I guess, and when it comes to fitness, it's either modality of the week or guest uh, PT fitness session of the week. And they'll, they'll just call it fitness as opposed to strength and conditioning. And basically, it's just more movement variability, and stress on top of, of, of movement variability and stress because they're already, already training rugby and quite often they'll do their fitness sessions after they've done their rugby training because it's convenient from a, from a timing standpoint. So you've got these guys who are already kind of tired doing more stuff that just makes them more tired. And I think, you know, the, the coach was insightful enough to go, wait a minute, this kind of isn't the, the way to do things. We need to actually get on board some professionals who can who can help guide what we're doing. So, you know, and let me just be the first to say that, that you know, my lack of experience in rugby, um, you know, was was definitely helped by having friends like Kieran and Flat and uh, and Sam Portland, who obviously both work in rugby. So the first thing I did was was I got their materials and read their stuff and, and, and made sure that I was on the right path, you know, uh, because I don't work in field sports until until now. Like this working with this rugby team is probably the first field sport I've ever really spent any time working with because I work with mainly individual athletes. So for me, that was a big change. In experience, you know, and the other thing is, is different. Normally, I'm used to working a lot of the time either in small groups or one to one. And with rugby, I had to change my mindset because I'm working to a room, and I have to be definitely be a more commanding presence. So, from a development standpoint, that was important to me to be able to project and and tell a group of you know 11, 12 people what I want them to do. Whereas normally, obviously, I'm used to speaking face to face. It's a lot easier, you know. So, coaching a big room like that actually it was a departure for me. And uh, what sort of things? Uh, so. Keir uh, is uh, and Sam, both professional strength and conditioning coaches, both worked in professional rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of things were they t- talking to you about? So with with those guys, uh, it was more what I was interested in was like the speed training stuff and more interested in sort of the tempo runs, stuff like that. What's the appropriate conditioning approach to do? And, you know, again, these guys, the, the, these guys conditioning's not not particularly great. So it was very simple, just institute tempo runs, that type of stuff. And, and, uh, my business partner happens to, to to play for the team now, which is okay. very useful. Yeah, so um, and he got sucked in. He got sucked in. Basically, he joined after the fact. So uh, yeah, he started playing for them. He played rugby before, and uh, he started playing for them. So he helps um, basically because I can't be there. I can't be on the pitch uh, because I've got stuff. You know, a lot of work on at the gym. I can't always be there. So he helps conduct the 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 the, the tempo sessions and the and the sprint sessions. 
and um, he does that stuff with them. So, uh, you know, and we've ripped off, um, you know, the, the Kia's Tempo uh, template wholesale pretty much, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. Yeah, and uh, that's online, isn't it? The Tempo yeah. approach. What, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. Where would that be? Strength Coach Network is where you can get that from. Yeah. Strength Coach Network, yeah, because yeah, I, I think at that level, I think it's very useful to have a framework. I was talking to someone else about this and um, I think it's really useful to have in, in the initial stages a, a framework to work off of if, you, if you're not too sure about what you're doing. The example I was talking about was, was wine tasting. I know nothing about taste. My taste, my sense of taste is terrible. But if you give me a menu to pick from, it's like, is it red fruit or green fruit? I can tell that. And then they say, well, if it's red fruit, is it berries or is it apples? Oh, okay, and it helps you. So things like the 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 frameworks that uh, that Keir's done, that Sam's done, and we'll talk about some of the ones that you've done as well, I think are really useful for people to be able to get into this, to be able to make some initial decisions. So, um, so yeah, you, you took that, um, you took that, so you, obviously you're very happy with the strength side of stuff. You got uh, a little bit of input. What, what initially would uh, a week look like for those guys? Um, I know it's very difficult because they're doing, you've already got three different types, uh, but yeah. if, we, if we took a fairly typical player, so I'm just trying to think of a grassroots coach listening along to this is like, what sort of things could we be doing? How could we be structuring our week? What, what would that look like for a, a middle of the road player? Let, mm. Let's just say um, a forward. Um, what, what sort of thing would they be doing? Sure. So I've, I've, I've got a forward in mind, for instance, who I can think of um, that, that is one of the more dedicated guys that comes along. Typically for him, um, he comes in on Monday and he does a uh, typically at the moment he comes in and does like a what we call high force, high velocity session. So he comes in, does some jump work, does some um, speed work with like bands or chains, usually in a back squat, uh, usually in a bench press not forgetting that he started his session as well doing a, a bunch of mobility work because like, like most forwards he's very stiff very tight and then we finish up uh, usually with with um with some network uh, usually they practice on a on a tuesday night they come in wednesday and do their high intensity session with us and this is usually sort of let's say 80 percent loading RPE sort of eight nine out of ten so it's a session where we push them we start off the session um usually, again mobility work some sort of compound um, heavy movement. Usually we may add some sort of contrast work for, for to, to try and keep things uh, compressed time-wise. Um, I used to separate it out, but it was taking too much time because uh, remember we've got classes before and after the rugby session, so we have to try and condense things a little bit to try and save time. Because um, uh, taking over the gym for an hour or so, you know, at a busy sort of, uh, you know, private commercial facility is an ask, particularly in a sort of, good slot on, a, on an evening so that's important too um and then we that for that session we generally do some accessory sort of hypertrophy type work more neck work um and uh from there we usually do some some grip strengthening and some core work then they usually practice on a thursday again and then on the friday they'll he'll the same player will come in we'll do a more um speed oriented session usually some some sled work uh, even with our, with our limited space, usually some sled marching or something like that. Um, and everything's kept very light. Uh, and then hopefully heading into the weekend and they play and then we repeat the cycle again coming into, into, into next week. And obviously this individual as well has a job. They can't always make all the sessions, particularly if they're, you know, I think this guy particularly I'm thinking of works in London. So sometimes they can't come for whatever reason. So, you know, you just keep going. They know the routines there. 
and that gives them that stability. They might come in and do a makeup session sometimes if they feel like it, sometimes just, just to feel better about the fact they've done a makeup session. And you're just, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of a typical in-season week for these, for these guys, you know. And um, the program follows generally a sort of six to eight week cycle um, because these guys have schedules that are quite variable. Actually having the structure of having the, expecting the same thing every week for six to eight weeks is actually good for them. Um, too much variability, particularly because they're not super high training levels, can throw them out entirely. So we try and keep the program very structured, very familiar um, for six to eight weeks, and then we usually change it. When we're off-season, we change it a bit more regularly because we have them more often. But uh, in the in-season, um, yeah, we, we keep it very, very structured, very samey. And they actually quite like that. How, how long are those sessions that they're doing in the gym? About an hour, hour 15 minutes, sometimes an hour 30. But uh, yeah, again, it's, it's uh, taking over a whole gym, uh, you know, particularly our size is, is at a premium. So we try and keep the sessions to, to just over an hour if we can. But yeah, usually an hour 15. I think that's something I see that quite often is people spending way too much time in the gym. They don't realize mm. how quick. And I, th I think that's a benefit of working in that kind of structured environment is they can see how much work can be done in a very short space of time, actually. Yeah. Um, and then, so the Tuesday, Thursday would would be when they were doing their speed and conditioning. Is that uh, correct? Tuesday, Thursday, generally they're doing their on pitch stuff. So yeah, they do their, yeah. they do their sprint work that day as well, usually. And then obviously with Corona, they've had to do more well not do more but that's been more of a focus because they can't do any contact work yeah. so we've been trying to add in sort of high quality speed work and then more uh tempo based speed work um you know and, and the temptation is to just uh like when it looked like rugby was going to kick off again um i could tell the coach was twitching and he wanted to, to to do more stuff to get them in shape and it's like they've been doing sprints they've been doing tempo work they're, they're in pretty good shape yeah, but it, I guess at the lack of being able to do contact, I guess as a rugby coach, there's a like gut panic because it's like we haven't done any contact. What do we do? What do we do? You know, so they were doing touch and stuff. And, and that had that that was problematic in and of itself as well, because um, touch rugby play is a different game. You know, you're trying to get forwards to play touch. They're moving in ways they don't normally move. Soft tissue injuries are, are, are a risk. We had one or two guys with a few soft tissues from from playing touch because you know, you got a forward and obviously in touch, there's a lot more lateral movement. They're not, they're not used to that. So, you know, it's great that you want to run regular touch tournaments because that's what you're allowed to do, but that's not how the actual game is played. And that's, that's a risk you've got to be contend with, you know? So if you're going to do lateral movement, you've got to get prep these guys for lateral movement. Most forwards don't move like that. So yeah, we had a few guys with soft tissues from, from, from rolled ankles and stuff because they're not used to, 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 to doing touch style play, you know, it's a different game. That's been another huge challenge from Corona, hasn't it? Which is a yeah. uh, huge break. And let's be honest, there, there will be quite a few people in the majority of environments who don't really do much in that, uh, in that lock, the original lockdown. And then we get cut, we come out of lockdown, coaches get their hands back on the players. And I've heard some crazy things about what people have been doing. You know, like, Oh, right. You're really unfit. Let's do like an hour long fitness session. And the kids, you know, we're like, boys are really blowing up straight away after. And, how um, that must have been a huge benefit for Chelmsford, having you to, to sort of direct that for them, because immediately they're, you're managing that load for them, aren't, aren't you? So what's your relationship with the coaching team there? Yeah, it's, it's um, let's put it this way. It's kind of arm's length um, because, again, uh, they appreciate we're busy, they're busy, and 
Um, you know, we, we probably honestly should do a better job of keeping in contact more often. Um, and But because I've got my business partner as kind of a go-between, that works really well. So he keeps me informed. You know, normally I travel a lot, which is a pain too. So I'd, I'd be away. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty pretty decent pretty decent relationship in that um you know when it particularly when it comes to the on-pitch stuff I guess we're seen as advisory so uh, at the end of the day if the coach wants to do something they'll do it you know we yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we uh, don't have that much sway you know because at the end of the day I think it's because we're maybe a little bit arm's length because the play the players that do elect to come see us expect certain things from their rugby sessions whereas the guys who just do rugby they want maybe more so they want to be gassed after a session. So there's perhaps a, a, a division there as well with the guys who do come see us regularly and the guys who don't. The guys who don't, their rugby sessions, not just their rugby training, it's also their fitness training. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is so, their, that uh, is their fitness that, for the week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so that's a kind of a, a divide that we've noticed, you know, and I guess there's pressure on the coach there because some players are going to be going, we don't want to do fitness work, we do enough as it is. And then others are like, well, no, I want to do a gasser at the end, I want to be tired, you know? So... Um, that can't be easy to to, to navigate either because you want to keep the players happy too, right? Definitely, definitely. I mean, that's what it's all about, particularly at that level is, you know, if they're not enjoying it, they'll vote with their feet and they'll just, they'll leave the rugby club, go somewhere else or stop playing rugby because for a lot of them, it is just their recreation and their fitness. So they just, that is what they do on a Tuesday, Thursday, don't bother with the gym or anything. And uh, how much, Influence have you been able to have over practice? So, for example, if the on a Tuesday, Thursday they're doing speed and conditioning, that that you say, right, we want speed to be the first fifteen minutes because we want them fresh to do that. And when they do their tempos at the end, or you know where you want things to go, have you had have you been able to have much input with that? Uh, I'll be honest, <laughs> no, not an awful lot. So yeah. it's there's definitely a division of of, of realms, but again, again, because this this is a low level, it's kind of like. SNC is your domain, Will, and the rugby stuff's our domain. And because these guys have such low training ages most of the time, I'm okay with that division for now. But let's say they do well and go up another division and, and then things get more professional, then you might want to start streaming line that a bit more. But basically, I'm, I'm working with, with what's the lowest hanging fruit here, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, in terms of our input, it's again, it's, it's because that relationship's a bit, uh, you know, a bit different. Um, it's sort of where does the SNC's coaches, you know, domain end and where does it begin? Obviously, in professional rugby, that's a whole different thing. At this level, we're just trying to make sure the guys sort of stay in one piece and, and uh, you know, get, get the basics done well and get them done right, you know? Definitely. So, um, in terms of those uh, cycles that you're doing with the, with the boys, the blocks, what, what sort yeah. of changes from block to block? So, I, I think this is another huge thing for me is consistency. I see a lot of people that train on their own jump around so much. They mm. they either do exactly the same thing without increasing anything. So it's it's really polarized. They're, they're either doing five sets of ten bench on a Monday with weight up and not changing any reps or anything. They just go mm. and do exactly the same training session, or they'll just go in and just be doing totally random things and, and not progressing anything. And consistency being a, a really key thing for me is like you know you you need to go in progressively overload what you're doing on the same exercise or whatever. So so what sort of changes cycle to cycle between the, the blocks, the ten, eight to 10 week blocks? Yeah, so this is where actually um, the, tri- uh, the triphasic program has been uh, kind of useful because what happens is by changing, only make the only change we really make is tempo uh, on the lift. So we'll do eccentrics for three weeks, we'll deload them a week, we'll do isometrics for three weeks, we deload them a week, we do concentrics for three weeks, 
and then we do maybe a block of power work for eight weeks and that way they're doing the same lifts over a 10-week period maybe longer the only thing that's changing is tempo so they get plenty of practice on those particular lifts so they understand that they're going to do three weeks of isometrics they're going to get a rest week. They're going to do three weeks of isometrics. They get a rest week. What they're doing is, is, is it's sort of, it's under the radar, but they're getting lots and lots of practice doing the same thing over again and again and again. So they're benching, they're squatting, they're, you know, doing RDLs, but they're doing them with just that. The only variance is tempo. And that way they're getting tons of practice at those particular movements. Because at the end of the day, what I'm more interested in is, is, is competency in those particular movements. And then all, the biggest variance then comes from the loading we apply um because again if you throw in too much variability um particularly at a low training age um you end up with very mixed outcomes you know whereas if i know that if i can get them doing the same thing over and over again but i just tweak the variable slightly this in this case it'd be tempo when we do have that micro trauma crop up when we do have someone come in with a, an issue it's easy for me much easier for me to regress them forwards or backwards depending on what they need so we for instance uh, we use the hand supported squat an awful lot because quite often the guys will come in, there'll be um, a soft tissue issue, and, you know, ankle, shoulder, knee, elbow, whatever it might be from contact or something or from a fall or, or, or whatever. And it's like, well, I can't squat this week. And it's like, well, you know, can you hand supported squat? Like coming on my back hurts this week or my, my um, you know, elbow hurts or my shoulder hurts. It's like, well, um, you can't squat this week. So what we'll do is we'll, ha we'll hand-supported squat you. So we'll take out some of the, 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 the sagittal stability, uh, instability of the movement. They can do that just fine. And that way they're confident at a squat uh, wherever we need to put them. So if it's not a hand-supported squat, maybe it's a goblet squat. If, uh, you know, if they can't goblet squat, then maybe they can. And this is something I posted recently. It's similar to the protocol I use for travel as well, is that you regress them based on what, where, what can they do right now um, as opposed to honoring the program and provided that, um, you know, they have good movement competency in their squat, you know, squat, push, pull, hinge, brace, you can regress them or progress them wherever they need to be to, to meet that demand. And, you know, I know guys who said, oh, well, I can't squat this week. I, I, I didn't want to come in. And it's like, well, we could find a way. And that was a big wake up call for a lot of the players was the fact that sometimes they go, oh, I didn't want to come this week because of X. And it's like, what do you mean it's like for instance we've had guys in boots we've had guys with with knee issues and it's like oh um like, i'm not coming i'll get a message on whatsapp i'm not coming tonight coach and I'm like why what's wrong and it's like oh uh rolled my ankle i'm in a boot and it's like you got three other limbs that work just fine you're coming in and then they come in and they're like oh, i was so glad that i came in and did something you know um because obviously they're off feet so they can't do any running or anything they can't actually practice rugby but they're like happy that they came in and were still able to do something some of them remarked like oh, i would never have thought of coming in and doing this and it's like well you know we're just doing what we're capable of doing at that place in time and that's probably the biggest wake-up call for the guys was if you've got micro trauma or if you've got a, a you know um a distal injury you know uh, whatever it might be you can still train around that and a lot of them would i think it's again because of the old school mentality it's like i'm injured I'm, i have to rest now and i'm off feet now for however long or whatever or i can't possibly practice and it's the idea of the well actually you can still do an awful lot even if uh you know you're suffering with micro trauma and that's something i guess i've carried over from from mma is where we've had guys who obviously the big risk of micro trauma there um small joint injuries stuff like that and it's like oh 
uh, we'll find a way to practice around it because that's the one thing with the MMA guys. They are so obsessed with training. They're very pragmatic. They'll try and work around whatever injury is and get some sort of practice in regardless. And that's something, I guess, that I've carried over into into the rugby training because I guess it's that, yeah, the old school uh, mentality of I'm injured, feed up, you know, and that that's it. You won't see me over many weeks. And in this case, it's like, no, no, you're going to come in, you're going to do something, you know, uh, and they then appreciate being in the environment with the other players who are all training. They can they can still be involved in the social aspect. And I don't know, part of me thinks that it helps them recover faster as well. And, and they're just pleased to be in the environment. They're still able to be around their mates. Yeah, they can't be on the pitch on a Tuesday or Thursday, but they can still come in the gym and be part of that environment. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, because I think it's a huge part, missing part of the puzzle for most athletes and certainly coaches is, is the value of getting in and training, you know, because when they work with someone such as yourself with that depth of understanding, a, you can work around injuries and give them a lot of stuff to do, but B, understanding exactly what you said, that it will help them to recover faster. I had a kid the other day who's broken his leg. And I was like, right, okay, we're going to do some leg stuff. He's like looking at me as if it's, it's like crazy. I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, you can do stuff on your good leg because you get crossover effect. So, you know, you will retain some strength by training the non-injured side. He's like, really? And so, but won't that make me, you know, just really strong on one and weak on the other? Like, you know, and then we started discussion and, and talk it through and, and it's sort of it. It's, it's, it's amazing how few people know these kinds of things at the moment. There's a, there's a, sorry, can I just interrupt? There's a great, there's a great Eric Cressy quote, and, uh, and that is, uh, you know, someone comes to him saying, oh, I've injured, my, I've injured my arm. And it's like, well, you can train the other arm. He goes, well, uh, I don't want one strong, one, you know, I don't uh, want one strong, one weak arm. And I think Eric came back to him saying, well, do you want two weak arms instead? You <laughs> yeah. know, so it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, just people's mentality is odd. It just strikes me as strange. Yeah, I think uh, it's probably a, a, just a lack of education, really. And um, I think it's, it's easy for people in SNC to see those things. But it's sometimes you forget just how little genuine information there can be out there. And that is the value in teams working with uh, a qualified strength and conditioning coach. There's a couple of things that you just sit in there and I, I'm just sort of conscious of um, the fact that we've probably got some uh, rugby coaches or people that aren't that well-versed in S&C. Yep. We'll, get, we'll get into the depth of it a little bit, but if you could just very, because well, I am interested to talk about triphasic in the in the second half of this, which might be for the more S&C interested people, but if you could sure. just quickly explain um, what who came up with triphasic and, and what sure. it is it, very briefly. Yeah. Uh, that, I'll just I'll, 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 that, I'll, I'll do my best. I actually put a post up on Instagram just the other day, um, actually outlining what triphasic is very roughly. And basically, um, I think it was 2012, 2013, uh, Cal Dietz, who's a strength and conditioning coach from the University of Minnesota, basically put out his magnum opus, uh, for lack of a better term, which was triphasic tra training with a, another coach called um, Ben Peterson. And basically outlined a system uh, wherein... Um, you train the various modes of muscular contraction. And if you go back to your PE, GCSE PE, you know, um, textbooks, we know that mus muscles have three modes of primary modes of contraction. That is, you know, eccentric, isometric and concentric contractions, which all affect uh, the structure and the muscle and the nervous system differently. But every athletic movement pretty much has uh, eccentric, isometric, and concentric component. And what Cal set out is, well, if we qualitatively train each of those muscular uh, modes of contraction, 
we can get better, more robust, uh, more explosive athletes. Um, so, for instance, eccentrics, you know, when muscles lengthen under load, um, isometric is that phase. Let's take squat, for example. So on the down part of your squat, that's that lengthening phase. At the bottom of the squat, that's the isometric phase, which is the switch over into the next phase, which is concentric, which is the up part. Everyone focuses on the up part. And with triphasic training, you start putting special focus on the on the on the lengthening under load, the the isometric hold, and then you train the concentric lastly, and you train them in, in that order. And what you'll see when you see people running a triphasic program is you'll see people doing like tempo, slow eccentric, or what most people call negative reps. So they do very, very slow descent, and then they'll pop back up again. And then when they're in their isometric training phase, they'll drop in very quickly to the bottom of, say, a squat. They'll hold that for a couple of seconds, and then they'll explode back up. And basically, eccentric or negative training and isometric training is nothing new. You might have done it before. It's been around for years and years. But what Cal did was basically systematize that in a fashion that you can follow from, from beginning to end. And, and what I found with most of my athletes, particularly collision athletes, this type of training makes them more robust, makes them stronger. I started using it with MMA guys, and I found that they, they, they were more injury-free, um, you know, and they performed better. And we always got very, very good uh, pre-post strength score improvements and explosiveness score improvements as well, um, you know, doing this type of training. And it's very much been integrated into my approach and it's a core part of, of the way i do things it's not how i always do things but it's a, a, a big component of that and um kia went and flat very kindly called me europe's answer to cal deets uh which is very very kind of him but but again i didn't come up with the method i just nicked it and 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 have applied it uh, in varying forms uh, ever since so hopefully that's a very concise yeah uh, insight into into triphasic training that, no, that is perfect. And normally we do this at the end, but this is one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you because I see you as being a very high signal to noise person in that a lot of the information you put out on Instagram, on your Twitter and all the rest of it is really high quality. Like my stuff is dogs running around the paddock or you know, just, <laughs> just me moaning about various different things. Whereas everything you put out is really good quality information. So what what just normally I say we do this at the end. What is your Instagram uh, handle? What's your Twitter handle? Yeah, so it's it's powering through all one word on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, WS Wayland. So you can check out both of those, and you'll see, particularly on Instagram, uh, doing a better job of organising my Instagram so that basically you can see everything's titled. You can see what it is, and and um, going forwards, I'm trying to make that even better with the way I put out information to make it more more accessible and then um uh occasionally you know it will it'll it'll be videos of me doing stuff so if i do something that i'm particularly proud of you know the ego gets in the way and i feel the compulsion to post it but most of the time it's it's other people training not not me all the time like um occasionally on twitter i'll post stuff because uh um i quite like uh posting things and and, and sort of perhaps winding up colleagues a little bit but uh yeah it's uh twitter is an excellent place to troll uh, and i'm getting better at it as well so, uh, you know <laughs> um yeah i always go for the instagram's more um where i sort of put out a lot of my professional content and then in twitter's sort of uh sort of put more into personally professional so that's a good place to, to speak to other colleagues and other people involved in the industry whereas instagram's not so good for that um you know most people's instagram is mainly hot girls working out and uh, you know memes so uh you know well i'd say i'd say i'd really recommend people to look at your instagram because i think 
couple of things. One is that you'll put some some almost slide based stuff up, which will explain your home tra- home training or training yeah, yeah. while traveling, and and there'll be text on it explaining what you're talking about, or like you said about triphasic. So I'd recommend people to go and look at that. But then the really good thing is that then you will post a video. So for example, we could say there's an emphasis on doing the lowering part of the squat, the negative mm-hmm. part of the squat, which is what you're talking about. But then you'll stick a video up, and then people will be able to see it. So for people who aren't, you know, if they aren't SNC coaches, they're just rugby coaches looking for ideas. I think that's a that's a great it's a, a brilliant resource for people because then you can actually see it in action. Um, so just talking about that, it, it sort of brings up uh, another question I've got um, as regards S and C is that a, a big thing that I'm struggling with at the minute with a lot of the people that I work with is monotony mm-hmm. because um, I can be a bit of a boring bugger really because I <laughs> I just like to go in do something and improve it. So you know I set quite challenging rep targets for things and say right you're going to do that, but it can take them six to eight weeks to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of tool? So I think triphasic would be an excellent one because, like you said, you can do squat over ten to twelve weeks, but every three weeks you're giving it a slightly different emphasis. How have the boys found that kind of thing? That essentially they're, they're doing exactly the same program: squat, bench, dead, um, deadlift, but they have a different emphasis on it. Does that feel very different to them? Are they like quite enjoying that? Is that something they talk about? Yeah, we've we've um, we had no complaints thus far, but but. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm shrewd, I guess, in the fact that I give them that work, you know, so I give them their veggies and then, uh, and then they get to have, um, you know, sweets afterwards. More sort of bodybuilding type stuff at the end, you know, there's always jokes about, you know, doing curls and shoulders and stuff. And, and, and I'll give them that type of thing to do at the end. They understand that it's a, it's a relationship that if they do the, you know, they do the jumping and they do the sled work, they do the, 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 you know, uh, compound lifts then they get to do the, the the bits and pieces at the end where they can you know do some bicep curls or do some uh, shoulders or whatever they want to do and it's uh yeah it's that sort of mixed approach and then um you know deload weeks for in- for, in- for instance we'll, we'll maybe add a little bit of variability in there um gpp circuits that type of stuff so you know but they understand it's a process and and you do our best to try and educate them on on the process and we get guys um do drop in do drop in and out but i tell you the ones who do drop in and out are the ones who've already got a long training age and already fancy themselves as very competent lifters um because i guess it doesn't fulfill their overall plan of wanting to be uh you know quasi power lifter or whatever it is so that's always been interesting to me that we get guys coming in and out um you know whereas the guys that have been us from the very start are the ones who are still going and they understand that it's a, a sequentially long-term term process and and uh yeah like they 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 really enjoy the program and then the other thing is they get very competitive and this is one thing i like about rugby guys is is, is um there's a real uh you know spirit that comes to in gym work that you don't get in many other sports so when the mid-thigh pool testing comes around are we doing any other type of performance testing everyone's on it like they're, they're you know there's a group it's the energy's fantastic and, and that's one thing i've really enjoyed uh working with anytime we do any sort of testing even if it's just like barbell based testing you know bench or squat or whatever the the atmosphere just just it switches on it's really really good fun and that's one of the one of the things i really like from from the rugby guys what well, um if if there are rugby coaches out there that are sort of thinking yeah you know we need to up our strength and conditioning provision mm-hmm. Um, I am going to struggle coming back from lockdown. I don't know quite what to do, how to manage it. What what sort of things would you say to to rugby coaches to 
to vet the information. So coaches they might want to work with or, you know, um, people that are coming to them to do stuff or places they could go. What sort of information or what sort of filters do you think would be useful to, to rugby coaches for assessing yeah. fitness? So the biggest things, I guess, the first one, it starts with you. So be sure to inform yourself. Um, you know, there are plenty of great resources out there that you can you can subscribe to or buy or purchase. And, and just to better better inform yourself, because I think part of the problem, particularly in this day and age, is there's a real sort of YouTube um, snapshotty approach to learning things. And, you know, well, I know we just plugged my Instagram, so that makes me a bit of a hypocrite. But the the you know the thing is is you've got to understand the broader context of how we apply approaches and methods and some people will just see a almost like a modification so oh i saw this exercise i'll try this or i saw this workout i'll try that and it's to then make the effort the onus is on you to make the effort to better understand the the principles behind why would you do that what reasons would you do that for now obviously if you're if you're busy and you don't have the time to learn that stuff or, or take the time to then hire someone who does you know and then there's a whole gamut of, of hurdles to jump through with that you know i see it in mma i see it in rugby as well i guess is is the the, the next best thing to do well this person's a personal trainer or this person's a and this is where i think you learn the difference between say a personal trainer and a strength and conditioning coach is that that depth of understanding and process of application varies an awful lot um you know and and then it's well if you want to pick a good snc professional lots of people now have a uk sca lots of people have the cscs qualifications so these are both strength and conditioning qualifications that you can ask for or look for that ex at least expresses a minimum level of competency it's not an assurance you know uh i know people have got the uk sca who I, i'm not sure how they got it and uh, you know on the other hand you know <laughs> on the other hand um you know, it's it's just on on you to try and figure out someone that that um, you know that works. And now there's more and more people who probably be able to provide you the ser the service uh, that you need. And you know, check out your local strength and conditioning facilities. There are more and more now than there ever were before. And you might be able to come to an agreement with them. You know, be it via sponsorship or or, or work out some sort of system with them, like we did. Um, you know, so yeah, there's a there's a level there that you need to get through. And it's just. Um, I guess the argument is just basically don't wing it. Just just don't try and wing it, which is what a lot of guys try and do, I think, or, or they, they, they grasp at straws and just not be in that mentality of, of, of just perhaps doing what you, you was done to you because that seems to be a big thing as well is that, well, this is the way we've always done it or this is how we got into shape. It's like, you know, just, just got to put your ego aside, I guess, and that's a big thing for a lot of rugby coaches maybe is because they're seen as figures of authority. The willingness to... to, to go there and take a risk and say well actually i don't maybe know as much about this particular subject i don't know an awful lot about you know con conditioning or energy systems you know there's nothing wrong with deferring out you know i'm uh, i do it all the time so uh you know i have three physios at my gym you know i have um you know various other experts around me that i can always call on and i think if a rugby coach uh can build a network of local you know, um, professionals that they can trust, it makes their job an awful lot easier. It puts a lot less pressure on them to always have all the answers all the time, you know? Yeah, and I, I think uh, I really like the way that you, uh, you you worked your model with that club. And what I would say to a lot of coaches is to, to do it properly, to integrate it properly. I see a lot of places where they'll get someone in for an hour every three weeks or 
uh, there'll be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction that they'll lose a game. Oh, we're not fit enough. Get someone in for two sessions one week. And it's 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 not achieving anything. I think the, the integration ha- has to be full. If you're going to do it, do it properly to make sure you're actually getting something beneficial from an S&C programme. It can't be something that's just dropped in piecemeal. It has to be something that's done consistently and regularly with a, a qualified professional su- such as yourself. And- I, think, I think part of the difference is the fact that a lot of guys are, are brought in. So basically the, 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 the fitness professional is brought into the rugby environment. Whereas what we did is like, we're not going to come to you. You're going to have to come to us. Whereas I think what happens a lot of the time is they'll do fitness work, but they'll, uh, you know, a geezer will turn up bringing some Bulgarian bags and some med balls out, maybe a sled or something. And they do it all on pitch, you know, and it's just another fitness session for lack of a better term. It's a boot camp type class, you know, well-meaning, but, but, but poorly thought out, you know, whereas actually, you know, sometimes you have to go to, you have to, to get off the pitch and, and, and step into the gym, you know, and I know that, you know, people complain about oh, too much time in the gym and not enough time on the pitch. But for obviously for grassroots level rugby, it's the other way around. You know, um, everything is on the pitch and, and there's perhaps not an artwork done in the gym. Yeah, particularly if your guys are weak and unfit. And mm-hmm. let's be honest, that most uh, most amateur grassroots levels, that, that, is the, that is just a fact of life. And that is a thing, oh, they're too gym bound. A, a lot of the reasons that people are immobile like you say you know and they've got no movement variabilities because they don't train and if they actually went in the gym and did a structured program with mobility in it and and like let's face it a heavy back squat can improve your mobility if you're that if you're that um if you're that stiff and and can't move you know it actually forces you through range of motions provided you're being taken through that properly so i i I think that yeah there's a huge area that coaches can can tap into there but i think it ha- has to be done properly um w- with decent coaches so so one other thing i wanted to talk to you about as well was um is neck training because yes. um, you you've written a uh, a manual about that which i think is really important but i think it has huge implications for for rugby but it wasn't actually rugby that you you came to this kind of training is that is that correct no. it was, uh, it's other, yeah. So. yeah it was it was um but primarily mma um, obviously you, you, you see a lot of the, the, the extant research talking about concussion and, um, the reduction in concussion rates with, with, uh, neck training, that type of thing. Neck training is also part of the sort of wrestling, um, combat sport canon. So it's considered kind of orthodox training for them. They'll do it and, and they understand that it's important. They might not implicitly, it's more implicit. They might not explicitly understand why it's important, but they know that obviously there's a connection. If I've got a strong neck, the less chance of getting knocked out. And there's that, that sort of, that they, they make that relationship between the two things. The big thing I saw was, was when I started watching like MMA and jujitsu was watching how these guys use their head um, and neck as a, as a tool in in close in and people don't appreciate that so they'll use the head to push their opponent they'll use their head to base on the floor they use their head to to like you use your head sometimes to 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 really grind into somebody make life uncomfortable for them um against the cage using your head position is is important you know where your head is uh gives you control and your opponent quite often is also trying to control your head because you control your opponent's head you can control where they go and and that's important that's why like uh, you know, people will always try and tie up with a head and neck um, in jiu-jitsu, in, in, in wrestling. 
to be part of what they do, particularly, you know, in MMA where they're up against the cage, they'll use the head to help press their opponent into the cage. So lots of little things like that I was seeing. It's like, well, actually, um, head and neck strength is is obviously very, very important, particularly what we call like a quasi-isometric. So when they're pushing their head into someone, at the same time, they're, they're moving it. So they'll be driving their head one way, but they'll be adding movement in a different direction. So this quasi-isometric, of them kind of pushing, grinding the head at, at sort of multiple modes of contraction. So you see a lot of the classical head, neck stuff is like the harness around the neck and they'll do the nods and things. And so well, actually it's more dynamic than that. What they need is something pulling laterally while they're doing the nod at the same time. And that's the big wake up call from most of my neck work was well, actually if we make it like eyesight dynamic, so they're under enormous amount of tension, but at the same time they're trying to, to articulate the head and neck. And we found that that, uh, you know, worked really well for getting us, um, you know, and again, it's important to be objective is, is gross neck strength scores. And if you want to test neck, it's really, really simple. All you need is a head harness, which they can be bought cheaply and or, or even, a, even a scrum cap would do the same thing and a, and a luggage scale. And what you do is you get the individual just to sit there, you pull on the luggage scale. And if you want, you can film them from the front and you're pulling on the luggage scale. And as soon as their head is kind of whacked out of position, that's, that's, the position lost, but take the highest score you could get while they were keeping their head in a neutral fixed position. And when we add our head and neck drills, we'll, we'll test them initially with the luggage scale. Uh, we've got something more sophisticated now, but we'll test them with the luggage scale and um, uh, we'll do our neck intervention of like six to eight weeks or whatever of various types of network. We'll retest them on the luggage scale and they'll gain like, you know, anywhere to sort of 10 to 15 kilos worth of, of force production. Um, you know, obviously it's better if you've got a linear force transducer, which is like a little load cell that can give you force in Newtons. Um, you know, working with the European tour, uh, we do a lot of neck strength work there where people wouldn't expect it. But obviously if you, quite often you get you, amateur golfers, obviously, and professional golfers, the biggest thing you hear them talk about, oh, my back hurts. A lot of them also talk about how much their neck hurts as well. Because if you think about the golf swing, you know, you're here and you're rotating through that's a lot of rapid whip through the cervical spine through the for the spine here um quite a lot of the time a lot of them have have neck issues as well so on the european tour for instance we started testing neck strength um using a load cell uh, a company offered us a a, a load cell for thirty-five thousand pounds we politely just declined and got in touch with a good friend of mine carl valley over at we managed to put one together for same type of thing for 400 pounds uh, the company then came back to us and offered us the same thing for eighteen thousand pounds. But uh, <laughs> I think they saw the European tour coming. We're like, well, golf has lots of money. We can we can just throw out a, an outrageous quote and hope that they pay for it. So yeah, we paid only a couple of hundred quid for ours. But what ours does is again, it's the head harness, the same thing basically. All we're doing is replacing the logic scale with a load cell that gives us force in newtons, so it's much more accurate. So we basically measure the change in force in newtons from from uh you know just pulling them this way against their head and and we can use that in rugby we can use that in golf we can use that in mma i use it with my superbike riders as well um which is particularly important with them and this is where the neck training varies an awful lot for instance is in rugby you need that grinding head and neck strength in mma you need the the, the grinding head and neck strength with articulation so they need to be able to move their head and neck in rugby obviously you want to try and stay fixed particularly in 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 a, a rock or whatever um in in superbike for instance you want to have that concussion proofness which is important but the other thing for, for i don't know if you've ever ridden a superbike before 
No. <laughs> no they, 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 you know, they, they vibrate an awful lot. So for them, it's what we call ocular vestibular stability. So because their head's shaking, their neck is important because they're trying to stabilize their vision because they're always trying to look ahead where they're going. Keep your head stable. You can make better decision making based off what you see coming. You know, and that's important for. So, for instance, you'll see my superbike guy will have a band attached to his head, and I'll be twanging it like a like a string. And people are like, "Why are you doing that?" And it's a, it's because it's adding vibration to to the movement. And the one thing, say for instance, Danny Bucken, who races in British superbikes, what he says to me is that feels most like when I'm on the bike, and that's perfect if we can. And because he's trying to stabilize his head the whole time, and then that's say where maybe you specialize neck training for a superbike rider versus where you specialize saying rugby where we do a lot of heavy isometric neck work you know so there's there's that that difference in neck training not all neck training is the same um which is the the distinction i'm trying to make yeah yeah well i think i think there's a couple of important things in there sort of number one thing is that is test train retest so if we're talking about neck strength is what where or you know you were talking about getting that that rugby club in to begin with is like where are these people how do we objectively find out where they are that can then inform our training and then we retest to see if what we've actually tried to improve has improved and there can be very simple ways of doing it It doesn't have to be in a sports science lab with all the rest of it so i love the fact of testing that with a luggage scale because (laughs) virtually every rugby club's got a neck harness uh and anyone can get hold of a luggage scale and and it if they pick up your your neck training manual they can sort of read into a little bit more detail about that but but what i just wanted to clarify for for people listening from a rugby perspective is the is the implications around concussion because everyone sees the correlation between front rowers uh, and even definitely uh, second rowers and neck strength but but how is that important for everyone else on the pitch you know because it's hugely important for every single rugby player on the pitch to have have neck strength and i think again this is something that's quite well known in strength and conditioning but very poorly uh known in in sport particularly is the concussion risk from having a weak neck so can you just have a little chat around that and, and also tackle technique as well because that is something yeah. that snc will talk about yeah so you know the the risk of concussion is there for all positions in rugby because all it takes is you know e- even if you're a back and you're on the outside and and somebody gets reckless somebody gets low doesn't tackle well there's a clash of heads or something like that it can happen to anybody on the pitch it doesn't matter what position you play because obviously your guys running around at high speed um there's always a risk of, of a collision a clash of heads or, or whatever um and or someone being tackled poorly and um basically what what we know from from strength and conditioning studies is that is that a stronger neck basically uh helps stabilize the head and if you help stabilize the head it means that when you do have that impact the brain isn't smashed against the the skull casing back and forth uh like a jelly in a in a bowl you know and and by having a stronger neck the head's more stable you're going to get less of that whipping effect through the through the skull um and that's going to cause uh, less trauma to the brain because we know that TBI obviously has uh, traumatic brain injury has a lot of potential risks over a prolonged period of time. But even one serious TBI is even you know a worst case scenario risk of death. You know, and this is a very real problem in 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 collision sports. It has happened to people, and it probably will happen. You know, and we're making lots of efforts to try and change rules and games. How, but there's always these tragic instances where people do end up in a very very bad way as a result of a of a of a, of a concussion and then a subsequent traumatic brain injury. So we know, for instance, that the 
good neck interventions can go a long way to help ameliorate that to some extent. Obviously, it's not going to prevent it, but it can definitely help um, reduce concussion risk, um, you know, by adding in, in neck training. And obviously, rugby's looking at it, but, well, how can we change the way we tackle? The way rugby players tackle is a million miles away from where, say, we see American football, where the tackling is is outrageous, you know, um, and they're trying to change the rules there to try and you know, make sure it's less risky. But, you know, uh, again, good, good, um, good tackling and rugby, you know, wrapping and rolling, stuff like that. It's basic level stuff, you know, but people forget that in the heat of the moment, I guess. And it's very easy to, to, to uh, you know, get reckless or whatever. People see red and and um, or an opportunity was depending on what's going on. You know, and and um, yeah, all it takes is someone getting silly or, or getting 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 too low or leading with their head or whatever. You know, and and it, it can happen. Um, yeah. So, but it's it's again, obviously, in in rugby, it's obviously less direct. Whereas, obviously, in MMA, we make that one to one relationship because people are punching each other in the face, right? So it makes sense to strengthen your neck. Whereas, you know, if you're a rugby athlete, say, you know, the the risk seems perhaps, you know, a little bit less you've done your strength strength training session and you've got network say at the end it's easy to just go oh i'll, I'll, I'll bin it off you know and but it's not it, it's, it's important and to some some extent i'd suggest maybe if you if you've got someone who's got a particularly weak neck um you know get them to do it first get it to do the first thing you do in the session you know we normally do it towards the end um you know after we've done our main compound work we do neck then we do like arm and shoulder work we don't put it at the very end of the session which i've seen some people do and players will do it half-heartedly or bin it off because they're tired so, you know, try and if it is important, you know, do prioritise it. And and you, like I say, you've actually written a, a manual about that, haven't you? It's, sorry, it's not a manual. It's an article. Oh. For, uh, there's an article on Simply oh, Faster. Right. Yeah, yeah, oh, OK. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll we'll link to that. Um, sure. But again, the really good thing there is that it, it can be done anywhere, can't it? And yeah. with sort of minimal amount of equipment. So we'll, we'll link to the article and uh, people will be able to to have a little look at that. Um, but yeah, I just want to emphasise that, that neck training is a huge, hugely important uh, aspect of training. I think it's quite neglected. And that sort of leads me quite neatly because you've sort of spoken about MMA. Is You've trained some very, very high level MMA fighters. And so from a, from a rugby perspective, what sort of things would you or have you taken from MMA when you're sort of lo- lo- looking at the contact skills, the grappling, that kind of thing? It's, it's becoming very fashionable now mm. uh, for people to do that kind of thing. What? What are the main lessons you've sort of learned from MMA from an SNC perspective that informs your the way that you train your rugby players? So the the big thing is like learning how to to brace and use body to body contact well, particularly how to like um, uh, shirk someone off and 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 loo- and, and uh, you know break grips things like that. Um, I was surprised when we had the guys come in and one of the first sessions I got them to do some pummeling. Uh, if you're not familiar, um, pummeling is like a, a wrestling drill where you go arm over, arm under, and you alternate with a partner. And basically, as you go, you increase kind of the body-to-body contact with the pummeling. And um, they'd never done it before. And I was like, and they were like, what is this? And I was like, it's basically a, how you teach kids to get used to body-to-body contact in wrestling, you know, or jiu-jitsu. And we do it all the time. So as part of our warm-up now, quite often, we'll occasionally do, do, do pummeling or on the field as part of the warm-up, you can get them to do pummeling. It's practice this over-under pummeling drill. If you go just Google just wrestling pummeling drills, it's a great way to get people warmed up and get them used to that body-to-body uh, contact, tucking the chin and, and kind of using the head movement as well with it. And, and 
just things like that taking from MMA that you can actually apply or, or wrestling that you can apply to your to your rugby practice. And yet it's become more common now to, to you see guys doing more more wrestling drills, um, that type of stuff as, as part of their sort of off field practice um, in terms of like uh, strength and conditioning programming type of stuff. The biggest thing is just being comfortable with variability, because, again, with MMA, those guys, a lot of soft tissue trauma, that type of stuff. Um, the same thing happens in rugby, fingers, toes, and I call it micro trauma. It's not an injury, if you know what I mean. It's not, yeah. not an out-and-out injury. It's just those aches and pains, the the, the sort of low-level tendinopathy, soft tissue issues that kind of – they're not enough to make you not be able to play, but at the same time, they kind of weigh on you. So it's like, you know, small joints, finger. Like I get it from jujitsu. My, my fingers are shot because of the way I play jujitsu. Um, you know, fingers, uh, shoulders – knees just a little bit achy a little bit sore and occasionally you'll flare up a little bit and then you've got to adapt the program you've got to change things around um you know and just having that that agile mindset when it comes to the fact that as long as you're competent in particular movement pattern it doesn't matter what the movement is provided you're getting the right amount of stress through the movement so it's like oh my shoulder for instance one we get a lot is oh my shoulder hurts obviously from a contact or something i can't back squat so i can't get into the into back squat position well it's like well you can safety bar squat or you can do a hand supported squat you know so it's just having that that mindset of just being able to adapt on the fly you know um for whatever it may be um someone's hands hurt or something where we can do hands some hands free stuff you know whatever it takes to still get a training effect even if they're carrying a little bit of trauma with them and that's something i learned with the mma guys because particularly a lot of the old guys now in mma are into their late 30s that i've been working with for like a decade or more they're walking scar tissue, you know, so we have to be very, very flexible, very, very adaptable with the type of training we do. And some of the old boys that we get in from the rugby team occasionally, they're in a similar type of shape. You know, you've got guys in their 40s who are still playing um, and all seniors players and, and they're walking scar tissue. They still need a, they still need a training effect because, you know, it's going to be good for them. But you've got to be able to adapt uh, and program accordingly. Like there was one guy who thought he'd never squat again. We gave him a hand-supported squat, and he was like, I can't believe this, you know. And it's just because he'd been trying and failing to do front squats and back squats. Nobody had shown him that he could do a hand-supported squat, very simple modification, and, and he's able to lift weight again, you know, um, just because the, that actually loaded movement just wasn't working for him for whatever reason. You know, it's just having that that adaptability mindset, you know, that, that I've taken from combat sports into into sort of rugby-type training, and that's 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 probably a big one. I, 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 that's something I'd like to get into a, a little bit later is, is it's interesting about um, the cultures of sports and the way that different sports or different cultures see things and it can have a huge impact on what they do but but um, I, I, I sort of wrap up the rugby bit there I think that's been fantastic I think it's a huge amount of information I think it's a really key area I think it, it's become a bigger and bigger area um, particularly at grassroots level I think at the professional level everyone's fit you know there are margins of of uh, of error that you can really improve but at the lower level there's such a huge amount that can be done and yeah. fitness will have such a huge impact on 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 teams because so many of the particularly the ones that i see at that the amateur and grassroots level are so unfit and so weak and so doing some quite basic type of, of strength and conditioning training properly programmed well integrated can have a huge impact so i think that's fantastic but the, the other reason i wanted to talk to you as well was because um we'll go into sort of the deeper part now is because I, I think you've got some fantastic thoughts on, I don't want to say the darker areas of strength and conditioning, that's not necessarily, <laughs> it's not, that's not necessarily true, but the, the, 
the less well-travelled path around strength and conditioning and coaching in particular. And that would be around philosophy and uh, various areas like that. And it's a really popular area. And I'd say I'm a, a good example of someone who gives this a bad name because you'll, you'll, you'll read a, a, a book or you'll, you'll see some quotes and you'll bang them out on the internet and you'll have a half, half-baked understanding of it. And I, I got pulled up quite badly once um, about philosophy. I was talking about I was trying to create a philosophy document and someone who's very well f- versed in philosophy just <laughs> absolutely tore it apart. I was like, you know, you haven't got a philosophy, you've got an ideology and just ripped it apart. Oh, yeah, right, I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. this at all. But, um, but you do and you've, you've read very deeply on this and you think very deeply on this and you've, you've written, again, you've written some great articles on this. So I think if, if we take uh, your approach to the, the pragmatic uh, approach to strength and conditioning as a, if we take that as a, a top level and we'll work down yeah. and just see, see where we go and how we go. So you, you wrote again a, a fantastic article, it was on Simply Faster, uh, that we'll link to about the pragmatic approach to strength and conditioning. We could just say the pragmatic approach to coaching for, for yeah. those who aren't strength and conditioning coaches. So if you could sort of explain what that is in fair, in simple Simon terms, you're talking to me. <laughs> so explain that in simple terms. And I think there'll be a lot of jumping off points that we could go into from sure. that. So for me, my interest came in. So, so pragmatism is a uh, philosophical school that was around at the, the turn of the 20th century, um, late 19th century. And um, uh, a fellow called Pierce, and his cycle of pragmatism has had a big influence on my approach. And um, pragmatists are concerned with consequence. So um, you can come up with like lots of lofty ideas about things, but if they don't actually work in the real world in a fashion that is consequential to the individual, then what, what is it worth? If it doesn't have a consequence for someone, um, then in their day-to-day life, does that really have value? Now, a great example, for instance, would be in physics. People talk about quantum physics. Yeah, I don't really understand quantum physics. I don't think anyone understands quantum physics. And even if you ask quantum physicists, they'll say they don't really understand quantum physics either. It exists. It's a thing. But in terms of it actually being consequential for us day to day, you know, in terms of my aims and what I'm trying to achieve, the question then becomes, it's nice, but does it really matter? And, and this is where uh, cycle of pragmatism, for instance, is, is important. And the cycle of pragmatism is basically a process. We all run subconsciously. We don't know, you know, we, we, we run it subconsciously. But the cycle of pragmatism is basically, it's four stages, there's four components to it. And basically, we come up with an idea about something. Um, and we come up with a theory or, or an idea. And um, what we do is we then action that idea. So we, we, we try and, uh, you know, act out whatever our idea might be. And then what we do is we come in, that idea comes in contact with the world. And, and what we mean by the world is like we are reality. And reality either pushes back against our idea, it doesn't work, or the world, uh, you know, it works and we get an outcome we desire. And this is, this is the, the, you know, phenomenology, uh, everything that goes into, um, you know, an idea working or not. Um, and then based on that result, what we do is we is we decide whether that goes into our um, knowledge knowledge soup, uh, which is like all our previous experiences combined, and then from all those previous experiences combined, we can come up with a new theory, and the cycle starts again. <laughs> Hopefully that 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 kind of makes sense. So there's four four parts. There's theory, there's action, there's the world, and then there's what we call the knowledge soup. 
And it's basically a process of, I've got an idea, I try it out, does reality like that idea or not? Or basically, does it work or not? If it works, that goes into my knowledge soup. If that doesn't work, that goes into my knowledge soup, and then I can come up with new ideas. Yeah? So that's that's my best effort to yeah, try yeah, yeah. train the cycle of pragmatism in very uh, simple terms. But we run this cycle over and over again, whether we articulate that or not. Now, what happens is people get caught up at different parts of the cycle and they can't move from the, on from that. So a good example would be uh, an academic who works in universities and does um, studies on very controlled circumstances and they come up with ideas and then they come up with um, uh, ideas about uh, the way people should act. The problem is that science is concerned with what is, not with how we should act. And we've seen it recently with a lot of the coronavirus stuff is, is that, you know, the modeling and things like that all comes from um, um, scientists making suggestions to how we should act. Whether their model's right or wrong, we don't know until it comes into contact with the world. Yeah. And reality, because we don't predict how people behave. We can't predict what they do. Will they wear masks? Will they won't wear masks? All that type of stuff. And then whether that has an effect or not, you know, that then goes into the knowledge sheet. Well, do masks work? Do masks not work? And then we, we, we start again, for instance. So that's 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 one example. But for instance, the problem is, is when you've got scientists who don't come into contact with actually actioning their ideas, they've got no skin in the, in the game there. And they'll just say things um, quite often to generate press or headlines and, and, and they don't have to live with the consequences of their ideas. And um, you see this quite often, for instance, let's go back to sport um, or nutrition is another great example, but we'll stick with sport in that people will do studies and they'll say, oh, this is a minimum effective dose for a training effect. You only have to say, do two sets of 10 on every exercise. All right. That's great. Yes. In, in under that circumstance, under their, 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 their scientific model, that works. But then we asked the question, well, who did you do it on? Well, we did it on completely untrained people, you know, students who've never done it. Well, I've got a team of professional athletes. Should they do two sets of 10? And then the, the answer then becomes, well, you know, if you're a pragmatist, it's like, well, probably not. Because, um, you know, the, 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 their needs are not the same as the needs of the people that were involved in your study. What we need, ideally, is a study on rugby players or a study on athletes to get a better answer to that question. But the problem is when you take that, that information and then basically you, you, you extrapolate that out to everybody, everyone should do two sets of 10. This is the optimal amount of exercise anyone needs to get, in, get stronger. You know, but this is, this is, you know, for instance, you see it a lot in scientific headlines. The best one people can think of is usually eating eggs, right? When it comes to like, how many eggs should I have? How many eggs shouldn't I have? And it seems to change every other week as to how many eggs were allowed or not. And um, again, it's like, well, who, you know, if you're if you're a 65 year old plus something, you know, with diabetes and really high cholesterol, more eggs is probably not going to be a good idea. Whereas if you're a resistance trained 30 year old who stays fit and active, actually, maybe more eggs might be a good thing for you, you know. And it's just that, again, the the real world is a messy and complicated place. And as a pragmatist, what you're trying to do is is find out what is consequential to you in your circumstances and to those around you and that you're working for or with. And that's basically what it's concerned with. Um, you know, lofty ideas are problematic because, again, you can come up with a, like you said, you can come up with an ideology. But the problem is, can you be sure of the effect of that ideology in the real world? 
because all, you, all you're doing is just spitballing, right? You don't actually know if it's going to have an impact or not. And uh, yeah, I feel like I've gone off on a massive tangent, but uh, does does that make sense from like a, a pragmatism standpoint? A hundred percent. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I want you to I want you to go off on tangent. I want you to talk about what you're interested in. Yeah. And so uh, just my little interjection here would be is that everyone, obviously everyone is a pragmatist because everyone is doing that all of the yes. time. But I think a lot of people don't actually take the time to appreciate it. So, so my example would be every single person I train, I always say to them, the best person to decide what you're going to do today is you. Because I can't tell you how you're feeling. I can't tell whether you're really sore or you're just saying that because you're being lazy. I can't tell you whether or not the back squat actually does improve your sports performance because you're the only one that knows that. But a lot of the people I train haven't ever thought to think through is this making me better? Is this making me worse? Should I train today? Shouldn't I train today? But if they took the time to do that, they'd know what questions to ask and then they'd know how to answer them. And once they start to, to run that process, to start to think about what they're doing, what results it's actually had in the real world for them, because you, know, you only need to look at people to see how different they are. You know, everyone is totally different and everyone reacts differently. Most yeah. people react very similarly because we are more similar than we're different. However, there are important differences. And I think a lot of people don't take the time to actually think about what they're doing. And I think certainly from a coaching perspective is you will definitely be doing this all the time, but you might not take the time to sit and think, actually, what what is what is this impact having on my sports team or how is my practice developing? So I, I, I think it's, it's something that people do, but they don't even realise they do. And if they started to pay a bit more attention to it, they'd get better results. So there are, there are two, again, more sticking points on that, on that cycle of, 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 of pragmatism. Um, the first one is, is false attribution. So uh, it's where, you know, I did X, I improved, therefore X improve my performance and it's like well can you be so sure so for instance do you remember those uh, magnetic bracelets that were doing yeah. around for a while yeah. yeah so people were putting them on and then suddenly their performance was improving and it's like uh we're, what we're doing what we're having here is a lesson in the placebo effect you know um but people falsely attributed their performance improvement to wearing this band and that's where um you know what they've not done is the is the theory part they've not thought about why uh the band is helping them or not What's the reasoning behind it? They're just basically taking action, world, action, world. So they're basically getting a consequence, but they can't attribute the, the they're attributing the consequence to the band, but they're not thinking any deeper than that. Uh, another place where people get stuck on the cycle as well is where they become wholly obsessed with like the, the extant body of knowledge or the knowledge soup. So, for instance, uh, what people call bro science is an excellent example of this. And it's just where there's a, there's a perceived body of knowledge. And most of the time, you know, information hangs around because most of the time it's actually pretty useful. So, for instance, everyone's read like Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding and there's a lot of good information in there. And there's like, you know, you speak to the guys in the gym and they know roughly what it is because they've basically got a cause effect situation where, well, I lift weights, I get stronger. I do high reps, I get bigger. And but then again, they can't. Um, it's a very rough process. The problem with there is they're not able to optimize or, or, or atomize um, what it is they're actually doing that's making a difference. And that's where you, you ideally you take, well, you know, if I am doing high reps to get bigger, how many sets should I do to get bigger? 
how many reps should I do to get bigger? And that's where our friend, the scientist comes in and then actually tries to help answer that question. He then gives us information. And there's a, a great example of this, where this happened is, is German volume training. Are you familiar with like 10 yeah. by 10? Yeah, horrible but, method. But just explain it quickly for those. Yeah, so, so German volume training is, is, an, is a, like a, uh, it was an Eastern block method from, from, from Germany. But anyway, it was 10 sets of 10, at a very slow tempo for multiple months. And the idea is to gain as much size as possible. So everyone did 10 by 10 and people got bigger. They got, they got bigger. They don't particularly get much stronger because it's just a lot of volume. But usually people eat a ton of food. They do 10 by 10. They gain loads of size. Um, if hypertrophy is your aim, it seems to work really well. But because you people who came up with the idea originally said 10 by 10, everybody does 10 by 10 every time they repeat this training cycle. Well, someone actually did a really, really good study and said, well, is 10 by 10 actually optimal? And what they found was people who did 10 by 10 got the same results as people who did four, four by, uh, sorry, who did uh, four by 10 to six by 10. So actually they were wasting time doing three or four more sets of this than they needed to. So that's a, a, a case where there's a body of knowledge about something and it, this is the way we've always done it. But actually this is where uh, you know, the scientist or, or the theorizer comes in and goes, actually is 10 by 10 appropriate? Should we do more? Should we do less? And they figured out actually we can do less if you need to. And, and that's where the cycle actually, you know, uh, uh, completes itself. So it's situations like that. People get caught in different different parts of, of, of that cycle of pragmatism. Um, either the guy in the ivory tower working at a university, the guy stuck in a gym using himself only as, 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 as the body of knowledge. You know, another guy just doing what other people tells him without questioning it. And other people who just act impulsively and train however they feel like it um you know so there's people stuck on different parts of that spectrum but oh holy what you want to be is completing numerous cycles of pragmatism over and over and over again but people because you know humans are fallible we get caught on a, a on, on a certain way of thinking or a certain way of doing things um you know basically we we either um you know end up with too much variability too much randomness or we end up with too much ossification of an approach and it's always been this way this is the way we've always done it and and this is where um, you know, the, 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 this cycle can, can fall apart, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the other mm. side of it would be laziness, wouldn't it? I'm, yeah. I'm, sort of, I'm thinking from my perspective, because I'm quite lazy, is that, all right, well, William's done the thinking for me. I can just go and do that now because he's read all the studies. He's, he's done that. Look at the size of William. I'm just going to do what William does. But that's what works for you, not necessarily what might potentially work for me. But there's sort of like an element of laziness in there that you can just take other people's results and, and go mm. and do that without, without actually doing the thinking for yourself because that's hard so how, how did you come to like uh, pragmatism it's you know it's uh um i think it was uh born out of um i guess uh jordan peterson um and him talking about um uh foucault and his thinking which is the constructivist approach to dealing with with everything um so constructivism uh, constructivism is concerned with the basically um, that everything we do is as a result of, of, of society and everything we, we have is kind of learned. Um, whereas what, say, Peterson is suggesting is that there are some stuff that is implicit, that isn't learned, that we carry with us. Um, so a good example is, is apparently we have inbuilt um, snake reaction mechanism. Um, 
And for instance, you can see it in cats. It, might, it happens in most mammals. Remember there was a viral period of people yeah. putting a cu cucumber behind a cat. Well, apparently the snake reaction mechanism is two neurons big. So snake reaction, you know? And what he suggest, what Peterson was suggesting is that some stuff we carry with us and it's implicit. And what, say, if Foucault or a constructivist is arguing is that all our behavior is all learned. Um, and so actually some of it is implicit, some of it is explicit. It's not all learned. Some of it's inherent. Some of the way we think, for instance, is inherent. But the argument is basically the cycle of pragmatism is, is something that's not we're not we're not taught it. It's a cause uh, consequence um, reason and way of thinking that's natural to us. You know, um, I do X, I get X result. Uh, and based on that result, is it beneficial? Is it not beneficial? It's beneficial. I, I remember that and I take that with me. And that's basically how we kind of operate. And that's kind of where I guess I got the, the cycle of pragmatism from. And, you know, basically, yeah, you, you, the idea is you're concerned with consequence. Is that that's the biggest thing from that. And um, again, people it's and people are like, well, that's obvious. That's obvious that you're concerned with consequence. Nobody would do anything if they weren't interested with the outcome. Is it but people lie to themselves and people more than happy to fool themselves into thinking certain things are happening for whatever reason they're very willing to 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 for instance when people make bad decisions or people make poor choices or bad decisions you see how people are very willing to try and explain away that it's somehow their fault particularly in, in today's society you know poor outcomes never anyone's fault right it's always somebody else's fault it's always and and i guess it comes to that broader argument is how how personally responsible are you willing to be and that's where pragmatism also sort of spawns off into, into that is that is that how much can you be accountable for um you know at, at the end of the day and and how much are you willing to take responsibility for and i guess that sort of reaches into some of the stoic stuff that i occasionally throw up as well i know it's become very trendy at the moment to to pay homage to, to stoicism because it's become uh, more popular but that's about you know again it's a very pragmatic philosophy because the idea is as well what 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 can i affect um and what is what is then worth not worth worrying about and then you know it's 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 that that argument and that comes come back full circle to our talking about worrying you know um what's worth worrying about what's not worth worrying about what can i make an impact on what is not worth worrying about and and this again it all comes down to consequence you know what is consequential to me um and what is not consequential to me and i guess it's that that division of those two things i uh, so talking about that, that personality that, that jordan pearson's done a, a series it's actually like a, a, a university course i think you, you yeah, it is, yeah. and it's i think it's like 16 hours and he talks about every single so if, if people are interested to, to learn a little bit more about this every single sort of school of thought around personality and, and how it develops so the, the constructivists the, the phenomenologists the the, the pragmatists and, and that kind of thing and and, and he talks about the, the background to all of all of this and where it comes from so if you're interested you can look at that and I, I do think that that is that is fascinating and it can be very beneficial for coaches because this again is a very trendy thing that we always say is you coach the person you don't coach the sport so you're coaching those rugby players that come into your gym you're coaching those rugby players you're not coaching snc for rugby and so you need to understand what's going to motivate them what's going to demotivate them what's going to work for them what's not going to work for them so uh, I, I reckon i've got an example of this but i'm not sure so you can tell me if not Go so on. i'd like to see an example of this and i think 
a good example would be when you first started working in superbike because yeah. there was no there was no research on superbike and so i think that would be a perfect example of sort of pragmatism in coaching and the process so can you sort of explain the process of of what you did and how you did it and why you did it and and how that sorts of fits in with a pragmatic approach because i think that would help other coaches to apply it to their situation yeah sure so um i started working a superbike uh particularly with 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 danny Buckingham, who i've probably worked with most now and superbike's an interesting challenge because at the end of the day um the argument can be made well how much of it is the rider how much is the is the superbike well superbikes don't ride themselves they weigh about 160 kilo and somebody does need to drive them around a track you know and um in in this case there was nothing from a training or research standpoint that had really been conducted into superbikes. Somebody had um, done some research where they stuck a thermometer up people's bums while they were doing um, you know, circuits around a track to find out if core temperature changed. But apart from that, that was the only piece of research I could find <laughs> on superbikes. Not very useful, really. So nobody had really done any research and because and, um, they get hot wearing those leathers. So um, nobody had really done any research into superbike. So basically... I had to go roll back and go, well, what's the basic of physical, what's the basics of physical training? Because we don't know anything about superbike riding really from a, from a physical training standpoint. The biggest thing was, well, I have to meet the, meet the athlete where they are. So I spoke to Danny an awful lot about the sport and what he feels happens when he's playing the sport or when he's riding the bike. You know, that's where we came up with the idea about, you know, that ocular vestibular stabilization, him stabilizing his head. What's he feel working when he's riding the bike? Well, he feels his adductors. He feels his, his because he has to stand in a very crunch position. He feels his core. He feels his hips. And obviously the other thing that happens is he feels his forearms. And something you talk to a lot of superbike riders about and motorbike riders in general is they a lot of them get what they call forearm pump or a compartment swelling in, in their forearms because they're constantly on the throttle, right? Um, and... Uh, you race for a long period of time, you get like a localized forearm pump to the point where some riders will get a fasciectomy to get their forearms opened up to allow for more space. Um, they'll get elective. I don't, want, I don't want Danny to get an elective surgery, you know. So um, what we did was, well, okay, so that gives us a rough idea of what's happening. We know you need to have a strong core. We know you'll be able to stabilize your head. We know that you need to have uh, good grip endurance. We know that your your adductors and your glutes are very important because obviously you're sitting on the bike and you're maneuvering it using your hips. You know, you need good hip mobility because you want to be able to get your knee down almost to the floor. You know, which is you know terrifying at 180 miles per hour. You know, all this stuff going on. And obviously, worst case scenario, if you fall off, you need to be strong enough to be able to a get into a decent um sort of pencil roll type position so you can try and stay in a good position or, or get into a into a into a tuck position as you come off the bike you, you need to be strong enough to be able to pull yourself in so that as you're sliding along along the gravel you know you're able to hold it together because if you don't and you start flailing about you're going to get really hurt right so we've now got a bedrock of physicality roughly speaking that we need to be able to train this guy so again you take a look at their general physical characteristics, you know, from a general straining standpoint, it needs to get stronger generally. So we work on that first and then we start working on the specific elements. So, for instance, in Superbike, going back to our knowledge soup, 
they all ride they all do miles and miles on bikes like you know yeah elite distances on bikes and it's like where's this come from why is everyone riding bikes and it's like don't know it's just what everybody does and everyone's putting in miles and miles on road bikes you know uh, they dress up in the lycra and they're all doing that as part of their off-season training it's like why is everybody doing this it has nothing to do with super bikes and they're like, no, just good for your endurance good for you so they've all got really good aerobic endurance but it's just something some received wisdom that's obviously someone started doing and now everybody rides bikes you know um and there's no real again that's an example of, of where the knowledge soup has a certain way of doing things um that's kind of ossified and it's now just mere replication there everybody thinks they have to do miles and miles on a road bike there's no good physiological reason for doing so and when we went took danny to the human performance lab for instance we tested him and his aerobic conditioning was off the charts you know because he does tons and tons of bike work now, whether that's beneficial for super bike riding, we can't be sure, you know, because no one's done the objective testing. Now, the thing is, Danny likes riding his bike. He likes running 10, 15 Ks. He's even done a few triathlons. I'm not going to take that from him. I'm not going to tell him to stop doing that because he enjoys it. And and if I were to just blanket ban, go, no, you can't do that anymore. Okay we're going to have problems. He's not going to want to work with me because I'm taking away something he enjoys on a personal level. You know, we've spoken about it though. And he said, yeah, I don't understand why everybody does so many miles on the bike. I don't understand why people do this because I'm asking him what's the reasoning. So we've then start training in a very general physical sense. We're now a few years with that under his belt. So we know how to train, how to lift. Then we start doing the specific intervention based off the stuff that, that I saw early on. So you'll see us doing like isometric hip work. Um, there's a few videos of me where he's like knee up on a bench and I'm trying to press his hip down. So he's, he's, he's using his adductor to try and ma maintain a stable position. We'll do lots of manual neck work as well. Uh, and then we'll do a lot of forearm work. So you'd see us doing the, the wrist roller. And we don't do the wrist roller in, in season. We don't do the wrist roller in the direction that he be twist the accelerator we actually do it in the opposite direction to strengthen the opposing muscle groups because particularly this off this this race season he was doing three races a weekend which is way more than normal because they compressed the season due to covid um so you know we're doing and then off season we do conventional rift strengthening in all directions but during the in season we don't want to add more volume to muscles that are already getting a lot of work from him doing you know just his bike his bike racing and basically over time we've come up with an idiosyncratic approach that may have some extrapolation to, that might help other superbike riders but here's the thing danny m tells me not to post much of the stuff we do on the internet because he doesn't want anyone to 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 get the edge that he feels he's got which is terrific yeah. you know a lot of these guys and you know you work with pro athletes a lot of them are narcissists they like having their stuff posted online they want to show off a little bit but danny's like no because everyone will start copying me I don't want them to, to, to do that, you know, because superbike riders apparently like that. They'll, they'll mimic each other. And occasionally he comes to me with stuff and goes, oh, look, so-and-so is doing network. Or, oh, look, so-and-so is doing, uh, doing forearm work. And he'll look at guys in MotoGP doing that type of stuff. And he feels relieved because we're kind of training in the same fashion. Um, and he feels that there's definitely something that he's got that his arrivals don't have in doing this sort of special strength work and doing general strength work because he knows that most of them are still out there riding bikes you know um but they're, they're like other sports they've had the same problems where um 
they'll do a fitness test to, to for the team and and um i'll ask like well, what's the fitness test and it's like uh push-ups per minute plank hold like tabata type type conditioning on a bike and it's like what is this testing what is this what is this for and it's like i, I and he's like i honestly don't know um but the, the, the team have it in their mind they need someone to do a fitness test for him they'll pick some yahoo they'll do the fitness test and danny's like i got a fitness test and i was like well you'll smash it because you do x amount of conditioning and you 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 know you train with me and then i'm like come back so what was the fitness test i, was like, I passed and i was like well, what does that mean I, was like, I don't know i just got told i passed and it's like they just i swear there were people just winging it just making it off on the on the, on the cuff so uh you know and that was a, that was a strange one that was a strange one i, I couldn't figure that out that you had to go do a fitness test and i was like well, when your team just come talk to me i'll tell them that you're fit enough uh you know it's yeah such a strange thing but um um there are instances like that where i think in superbike because there are so many unknowns that there are people who can get away with just kind of winging it and 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 um, we see it in golf as well um i call them non-intervention non-interventional coattail riders basically do the bare minimum look like the athlete's doing some work yeah. but make sure you ride their 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 coattails the whole time you know and we see it a lot in golf because we there's a lot of faff in golf and uh you know you you, you want to look up um you know dubious strength and conditioning just look up golf fitness on instagram and just see what's going on and it's like a it's a mess of, of well-intentioned nonsense you know um and that's one big change that's now coming to golf as well but superbikes are the same they're doing lots of weird weird silly stuff and it's all well-intentioned i'm sure the trainers that are training them have have good intentions but there's clearly been no real thought into into what's happening and what's going on it's in it's it's a it's a big factor, isn't it? Because quite often I found myself under pressure from coaches. I keep getting it. It's like can sports specific stuff now. We need to do some more sports specific training with this person or whatever, or from the athlete themselves. And like, I think your framework or like to start to think in a pragmatic way is really important because there's been a number of times I've sort of been drawn with it. You know, they, they like, they pull you off track. Mm. You, you know, you know what you sort of believe in. You think, yeah, you know, look, this, this, this kid's weak. They need to have some mobility. I'm just going to get them doing general mobility, uh, general movement stuff. So they're going to just be pushing, pulling, push, pull, bed, twist, squat, lunge. They're going to do all those kinds of things. And, uh, and I'm not really going to worry about the sports specific stuff, but sometimes you can feel yourself being pulled off. But if you've got quite a strong framework and you know what you're looking for, you can be held stronger to your, to your principles and to your beliefs. And I, I think golf's a great example of that is because most golfers are just massively weak and they'd be hugely, it'd be hugely beneficial for them to be doing squats and deadlifts and all the rest of it. And, uh, it, it's really funny to see then all of a sudden Rory McIlroy <laughs> gets filmed in the gym and then everyone's doing it. And it, that is that copycat thing. Whereas if you've got a strong framework and you've thought about what you're doing and why you're doing it, then you can be true to your beliefs and you don't get pulled off, off the path. Yeah. This, this is the problem is, is, is being principled versus because humans are great replicators. We, we, we learn at least initially via mimicry. Uh, you know, we, um can extrapolate the, the 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 essence of stuff from seeing other people doing it at least we we think we can the problem with that is what's why instagram fitness is the way it is it's just lots of people you know who look attractive doing exercise um and, and people then 
uh, see that and then attempt to mimic it. We see the same thing in elite sport when when ex-athlete does whatever and people then start mimicking it. But what obviously what they don't have, um, because we're great visual learners, we're great mimickers, obviously there's no context behind any of what's happening. It's just mere replication. And it's almost like um, uh, what I describe as cargo cult uh, fitness. Yeah. In that, um, you know, you're familiar with the cargo cults. They used to build airplanes and runways out of like coconuts and, and, and palm trees because they they would hope that a plane might come and land or, you know, it would it would summon the, the, the gods to bring a plane to them or whatever. It, and these things would look like almost perfect replicas of, of, of airfields made from like, you know, coconuts and palm trees. Well, they don't obviously everything looks great, but they don't actually understand why they built it or what a plane is or, you know, any of this other stuff that comes with it. They just replicated it as per. And this is part of the reason why I don't repost much of my uh, sports specific golf work. I posted some yesterday on Twitter. I don't post a lot of it because I'm such a big believer in general preparatory approaches for golf being first and foremost. I know if I start posting specific preparatory exercises, people will think that's all we do. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, no. There's there's years of of general physical training that's gone in before we actually start applying very specific physical training approaches to this individual. But this is the thing. Everybody's interested in the diamonds and they're not looking at the crown, you know. So it's um, uh, uh, that that sort of stunted approach to to, to learning is excellent because some people, particularly if you understand the principles behind something, you can see it and go, I understand. I think I understand why they're doing that and the reasoning behind why they're doing it. On the other hand, if you don't have that that basis of knowledge, you just see it and go, well, I'll give that a try, you know, and then that's that, without really understanding any of the, 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 the thinking or, or context behind that. And that's where, you know, people, it's a tired phrase, but context is everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think the, the other thing I was quite impressed with uh, the content you were putting out, and I think the, the lockdown sort of mentioned it right at the very beginning was a key a key time for you to demonstrate this approach was right lockdown no one's got access to a gym but you've been sort of working through this process for a long time because you have traveling athletes and so it was fairly it seemed to me that you had it all really well uh, thought through in your mind and you posted a lot of stuff there so I think that that could be a good little uh, thing to talk about is how how you sort of approach traveling athletes yeah. and therefore because because there was a because the way that you posted it again people could just look it up on Instagram is you 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 took people through the this, the problem solving decision making process that you that you follow working with athletes who travel, and it sort of it sort of blew me away a little bit that how how much people struggled in lockdown to train when they didn't have, have access to a gym or anything. I was like, it really isn't that difficult. I, yeah. I had I had a a period of time where I was training people, and I, it almost got to the point I was like. I'm not going to train you until you can do 20 press ups and 50 decent squats because you can just go and do that. You you need to, a lot of people are wasting my time because they just wanted me to sit and talk to them for an hour. And yeah. you need to almost demonstrate a little bit of uh, commitment and a little bit of what like, you can actually get on and train on your own for a little bit before you come to me. That's, that's a sidetrack. Let's get back to your, um, thing about, <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to your thing about, um, uh, about traveling athletes and lockdown and body weight. And so just, talk us through that decision-making process. And again, I'm, I'm assuming that came from the pragmatic approach. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, picture this, uh, this was a few years ago now. I think it's my second challenge tour event, uh, for the, for the European tour challenge tour is like the, the, the next tour down 
and a developmental tour. And um, I've been to an event in Turkey that had had a pretty decent gym prior to that. Uh, I'd gone to an event in Scotland, uh, Scottish Hydro, uh, a golf course, uh, I can't remember, near Inverness. And uh, I was told uh, by the staff, um, oh, there, there's a gym there, there's a gym there. I'm like, brilliant. Okay. I get there and I get, get to the gym and pretty much it's an empty room with a techno gym treadmill, uh, a cross trainer. It's got a bench, a single Olympic bar. It's got um, standard plates that don't fit the Olympic bar. Um, and that's it. That's all they had. And they're like, that's not, that's not a gym. And clearly the person who's put this together doesn't train and doesn't know what a gym is. So I've got potentially you know, because the field's about 100 and 110, 120 people, any of them, if they want to, if they choose to do so, I've got to be able to train them. So um, that week, we did a lot of workouts involving just the bands I brought with me and just an empty barbell, you know, and, and, and we did, did what we needed to do. So I taught basic movement patterns, you know, push-pull, um, uh, squat and deadlift, just with an empty barbell, you know, and... I, yeah, I know ideally I can't apply a lot of stress doing that, but I can at least teach the athletes, particularly in that population who aren't very lift savvy, how to do the basics with just an empty bar, you know, and, and um, from that scenario, there's a couple of guys now that work with me very regularly. You know, we'll go to different events and we'll have different setups and we'll, we'll adapt accordingly. So um, another example is this week, I've had guys uh, playing in Johannesburg i got one guy who, because he's got some, some uh, back issues, can't really back squat. So we do trap bar dids most of the time. Um, he's wound up in, in Johannesburg because uh, the Joburg Open. And he's wound up in Johannesburg. And there's lots of gyms there. Um, but none of them have trap bars. They've got barbells. They've got squat racks, which under normal circumstances would be terrific. But this guy's panicking because he's like, they don't have trap bar. They don't have trap bar. What can I do? What can I do? So I'm like, OK, take a quick wreck around the gym. Have a look for like a plate loaded um uh you know leg press or something like that and he shows me one which is like a, a techno gym thing with a foot plate that you can you can you can you know you're on a sled so you're laying horizontally and i remember obviously this guy's got some lumbar issues so for him a leg press a conventional you know sl sleigh type leg press where he's sitting on his sort of sitting down on his back probably not a good idea for him because i can imagine him getting into a very flexed position what they do have is a hack squat machine, which is very, very old school. You don't see them very often anymore. So I'm like, mate, give the hack squat a go and see how you get on. Because the hack squat, ostensibly, from a movement standpoint, it's not very different to a trap bar deadlift, if you think about it. You know, so we did the hack squat instead. So the, the two weeks he's been there, he's been hack squatting um, for his low body work. You know, um, and that's another example of just adapting uh, on, on the fly. So the process is basically this. You run what we call an OODA loop. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, a ta it's a tactical thing. It comes from military speak. But basically observe. Um, uh, sorry, I'll try and remember the OODA loop now. So uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. Okay. So um, basically I tell my athletes, get, the, get your OODA loop down. An OODA loop usually works in a tactical decision-making, say, on a rugby pitch. So whether it's a duck, duke left or duke right or whatever, that's an example of, a, of an OODA loop. Um, so uh, in this case, it's observe uh, orient yourself so if you go you go to your gym you're in a hotel gym orient orient yourself 
observe, see what's in there, and then make your decision as to what you're going to do based on the equipment they've got in that gym, and then do your workout, act. And that's the, the, the OODA loop process we go through. So I teach the guys this. So for instance, let's say you, you've, you've got to your hotel gym, you've been practicing all day, you're in the hotel gym, um, you go and take a look, and you've got back squats planned. You take a look, there's no squat rack. Um, there's no barbells. Uh, there is a Smith machine, so maybe you could do Smith machine squats. But let's say they don't have a Smith machine either. Well, what have they got? Well, maybe they've got some dumbbells or kettlebells. Well, maybe you could do some goblet squats instead. Um, but let, hey, let's say they don't have any dumbbells or, or kettlebells. Well, what have you got? Well, in that situation, I've got what's in my kit bag. Well, what have you brought with you? Well, I've got a TRX. I've got some bands. I can maybe do some band squats. I can maybe do some TRX squats. You know, um, let's say I don't have my kit bag. Well, I'm in my hotel room. There's no gym. I could do some bodyweight squats. I could do some, you know, heel elevated um, split squats, whatever I need to do to intensify the, the load. And this is the thing. I might have two or three weeks like that. Uh, as long as I'm practicing the movement patterns, doing some movement work, you know, maybe the next week when I do have a decent gym that's well equipped, that week I go for it. I, I, I chase it down and try and get some good stimulus in. Because then maybe for the next couple of weeks, I might have, a, you know, a crappy, you know, gym that only has dumbbells or, and it's just, you know, making the effort and learning to adapt on the fly, follow the principles which are ensconced in the program. Don't worry so much about the actual exercises. And it's just getting people into that mindset of just being flexible and adaptable. And don't get me wrong, not every situation is always that bad. And the guys I work with regularly usually make the effort to try and locate decent gyms to where they are. But if, I don't know if you've ever been to like most golf courses. If they do have gyms, they're always awful. Yeah. Um, and this is something I talk about all the time. And some of them are getting better and equipping uh, decent gyms. But quite often, particularly in certain places, golf, golf courses are in the sticks. So there's no, you can't go find a CrossFit box, which is the, usually the next suggestion I make is that as much as people deride CrossFit, one of the things it's done is it's given us well-equipped gyms just about everywhere that you know will have a rack and have barbells and have bumper plates. You know, so find a CrossFit box. Usually they do an open gym that let you come in and train. Perfect. So it's just that, that situation of having a scaling model of, well, these are the principles by which I train. I don't have the ideal equipment but I can always scale my workout to, as long as I'm doing the core elements of what I'm trying to achieve or respecting the fact that, um, you know, at some point I will make the most of an opportunity to train hard when it arises. And it's just having that, that approach. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I, I think it's sort of reflective of your background, like you said earlier, sort of a non-traditional background and you come from a various different environments and work in different sports it gives you that variability. So we can talk about variability in movement, but as a coach that gives you a lot of variability so that if you turn up somewhere like that, your first option is, whoop, that's it. Can't train. <laughs> Off I go. Yeah. He's like, well, right, what, what can we do? And I, I think that I, I see that quite a lot now is that unless conditions are perfect, people can't operate. And I think, you know, the real world, exactly what you're talking about and the pragmatic approach, the real world is not perfect and very rarely is everything there for you. And so you have to work out ways to work around that and I, I think it I think that is a, a good area for coach education is problem solving and decision making and I, I think obviously we talk a lot about culture and we talk a lot about the te technical tactical talk about um, the scientific side of things but I think 
that decision making and problem solving is 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 what everyone does constantly all day every day but I think that will be the the next sort of big area. So that that would be probably one of the last things I'd like to talk to you about because you you do talk a little bit about agile planning, and I think that's something yeah. we're starting to 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 come more and more to the fore. And again, I think it tends to be one of those phrases that people will use without truly understanding it. So again, I think you've done a lot of research and a lot of application in this area. So I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on that. So um, the the term like the agile approach or agile periodization. Um, I guess comes from uh, a good friend of mine, um, Laden uh, Jovanovic. I always get his last name wrong, um, but he's his approach has been enormously influential. Uh, I've even written a few articles for his website, um, and I've actually got his book just here. Um, it's uh, yeah, uh, it's a it's a great book. I will recommend it. It's the Strength Training Manual: The Agile Agile Periodization Approach. So there's a there's a plug for Laden right there. We'll put it um, in the notes. Yeah, um, and. Um, Basically, the approach is this, is that a lot of the models we use in sport, particularly at a high level, they're, they're quite often based on athletes or predicated on athletes, um, particularly, you know, from NGB athletes who are on Olympic cycles, who have really long periods of time to prepare and train for, for sport. And a lot of our strength and conditioning orthodoxy is based around these athletes um and then the problem is you talk to anyone who works with field sport athletes those long-term models don't actually particularly apply very well but they they yet are still part of the strength and conditioning orthodoxy that we apply easier to um, study aren't they yeah yeah so they're very easy to study and very easy to do research on ngb yeah. athletes because all they do is wake up train sleep and they'll compete once every now and again enough to to then have a shot of getting in the olympics right and you know, a lot of these these models are what we call very top down. So they're planned over very long periods and all the cycles are all neatly arranged. So there'll be, you know, your 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 mesocycles, your and your macrocycles and your microcycles, and they're all planned out and, and we know um, where the athlete's gonna be in six months, we know they're gonna where they're gonna be in twelve months ideally, and they follow this very rigid model of sort of particularly block sequence uh, model that that's um, you know, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and it's all neatly organized. Your problem is, again, let's go back to my example of, of turning up in Scotland and only having a, a barbell and plates that don't fit it. My lofty long-term periodization model suddenly flies out the window because I can't do my maximum strength, you know, or, or plyometric power or whatever workout I had planned has completely gone out the window because the environment or the world has thrown me a spanner. At that point, I've got to adapt what I do. And this is where um, the agile approach is actually, instead of taking a top-down um, approach, what we do is we take a bottom-up approach. You meet the athlete where they are. What is it they need right now? As opposed to, to you know, well, well, what do we need in 12 months? What do we need in six months? What do we need? And, you know, you respect that. You have a rough idea of how that's going to go. But the most important thing is what's happening right in front of you right now. And with the agile approach, obviously, the idea is that, that well, um, depending on the circumstances the athlete's in, um, like with, you know, where we take that heuristic of, of looking at them and saying, well, we can tell that the, the forwards need 
uh, more speed and the backs need more strength. Quite often, I don't need to test that to know that. I can just I can just see it. Well, there's nothing wrong with following that heuristic and adapting the workouts as we go. Uh, and then let's say, um, you know, some of the forwards actually turns out they don't need more speed. One or two of them actually might need some strength just from the training process. So we actually start training. We get them under the bar. And it's like, actually, you're kind of weak. We do need to maybe shift your training to somewhere else. And it's just taking that information that you pick up from session to session and then acting on it. So basically, you're, you're, you're able to, rather than following a strict eight-week plan of, of, of day one, day two, day three, we know exactly what they're going to do each session. Well, in, in four weeks, in five weeks' time, that athlete might need something else. You, you can't be prisoner to the, to the plan you've constructed, if you know what I'm saying. And it's that willingness to be able to adapt, which is why quite often I'll program in three-week cycles, because that way it gives me more flexibility to, to adapt around whatever's going on. Um, and, you know, most people, they, they draw up elaborate long-term uh, plans. And it's why uh, I wrote an article called The Compressed Triphasic Approach for MMA. Basically, what we do is we, because triphasic, at, at its heart, going back to what I was talking about earlier, it's actually quite a long-term plan. The full triphasic cycle, we've done as Cal Deet sets out, it's 20 weeks long. Um, with MMA guys, I don't have that much time. I've usually got 12 weeks. So if I can use a compressed approach and do some of the intensive work within four weeks, then I've got all the other time to, to do what I need to do in terms of speed, power, all that type of stuff. So again, and that's where I'm kind of at now is that my approach would probably be best described as agile triphasic. I know it's a mouthful, but that's probably the way where it's, I need a better name. Uh, yeah. That's probably where it's, it's come out at. And, and it's just a sort of, marrying those two approaches because i know that eccentrics isometrics and, and heavy concentric work are very important but then how do i adapt that to a program that needs to change every you know a couple of weeks because you know the athletes are, are constantly dealing with varying demands you know and it's just having that ability to 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 sort of go with the flow and be a bit more adaptable in terms of your your training approach i hope i've done i hope i've done Maladin's book justice but there's a lot of um, he talks a lot about um jordan peterson gets a mention he talks about like narrative approaches to training stuff like that and just um you know not being a prisoner to your own thinking when it comes to having to adapt to what the athlete needs there and then is, is the biggest thing from 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 that approach if that makes sense yeah no absolutely it de definitely does i mean that you see the size of that book is huge so it's quite, <laughs> it's quite a job to to um to summarize that quickly but i think that's that's been absolutely fantastic insight into into the way that you approach training to to the results you've achieved i, I think it, it's really fascinating for coaches to whatever sport they're interested in to see that process and the situations you've been in. And I think it's, it is that thing where, you know, the tougher the situations you're in, the more adaptable you are because you've been, you know, been very difficult situations and you're, you're easily able to cope with, uh, you know, <laughs> quite a stressful <laughs> situation where you turn up to a gym. I mean, that must be the same person that designs every single hotel gym around the world <laughs> because they all have the worst, the worst. Techno gym do some some reasonable kit now and again, but you don't get any of that in there. You only no. get the really terrible stuff. And there's no. always a personal trainer working in there. You think, how do you come in here day in day yeah, out and work it, in here? It's pretty crazy. It, but. It, it boggles my mind. It's like um, uh, recently this year I was in Dubai and I was at a center of excellence and it only had uh, one rack without adjustable, uh, and it was one of those awful, awful squat racks that slants away from you uh, with the with the big J with the big yeah. J cups. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was like, this is a center of excellence. And they're rocking a techno gym uh, weight set that only goes up to 150 kilos. But I tell you what, they had loads of those um, dual pulley machines, like oh, absolutely yeah. loads of them. And it's like, so basically someone who doesn't train has gone, this is what I think I need. I think golfers need to train. And it's almost like the, the barbell set was thrown in as an afterthought because it's like, well, someone might want to do some curls or something, you know. So it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it just boggles my mind. But, um, you know, and this was a center of excellence. And it's like, hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. So that, that situation, and this is something I sort of, I don't know if we put out an open letter or something or start a consultancy approach where it's like, look, if you're about to build a gym for, for a golf course, get in touch for, you know, so I'll, I'll help you put together a decent one because most of the time they're, they don't, they're not fit for the needs of the people because most gyms, particularly on golf courses and hotels are put together by people who don't train. Yeah. yeah. And this is a bizarre uh you know bizarre scenario i don't know why uh this because surely when people then use it they complain but i think people just just don't because a lot of the people that use them don't know any better either so uh you know yeah because you're losing business ostensibly yeah know? yeah and an opportunity i think as well particularly for rugby clubs that's a huge opportunity because most rugby clubs either have one or both of these things they either have a squash court or they have a container or they have a squash court and a container and so a lot, hardly anyone plays squash nowadays. A lot of gym, rugby clubs are changing their gyms over to uh, changing their squash courts over to be gyms, or they're putting uh, gyms into containers. And there's some really, really good stuff that you can do in that kind of a space. And yeah. and I, I think yeah, there there would be an op- an opportunity to to get that kind of information out to clubs to say actually for a very limited amount of money you can get a really good setup. And um, and the other thing, like you say, is things like CrossFit have meant that there's a, a huge increase in suppliers which has obviously meant a, a drop in price for most things, squat racks, barbells, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And with lockdown, you couldn't get fitness equipment for love nor money, could you? So, No, I, mean, I, had, I had people offering me cash money for, oh, uh, really? for my, and more than what I paid for it for, oh, for, really? for, for gym equipment. But we've got like, we've got like Alico sets and stuff. So it's, it's really? uh, you know, not, not cheap to begin with, but people, you know, offering me cash money to come train um, like way above my hourly. And it's like people <laughs> just driving people mad, clearly not being able to exercise, you know, Maybe you should go, uh, you know, read read some of the stuff about home workouts because it's going to work out a lot cheaper in the long run, you know. But you can't get equipment now. Everyone's asking me where can I get a barbell set? Where can I? And everyone's sold out. Like, um, don't get me wrong. Once things hopefully get more back to normal, I hate that term. Um, that uh, you know, there'll be a buyer's market for gym equipment. So hopefully, rugby clubs will be able to pick up gym equipment. Um, you know, pretty pretty reasonably cheap because people would be, you know, you don't want a barbell sat in your living room, do you? So you know, people would be selling that stuff off cheap. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, if if rugby clubs want to get hold of you to uh, find out about your your training or get some ideas about how they could set up a, a decent facility, uh, we've sort of mentioned it through. But where where are the best places to contact you or find you? Yeah, it's uh, you can reach me on email. It's William at powering through dot com. If not, my, my Instagram is is uh, at powering through. You can shoot me a DM or Twitter. It's uh, WS Wayland. And we're always happy to have people come visit the gym, come watch our sessions, come watch our approach. So we're based in Chelmsford in Essex. You know, we get interns come through. We get coaches come through. Other S&C coaches want to come see what we do. So we're more than happy to have people come visit. You know, once things are a bit more uh, normal, that would be perfectly acceptable. So, uh, you know, yeah, we're more than happy to, to show people what we're doing. 
that's fantastic. I think there's a huge amount of value in that. That's to me now. That's my favourite CPD is going to come and see people. So I, I'm actually from Essex originally. We live up in Suffolk now. But um, next time I come down, I'm definitely going to stop. My mum and dad used to live near Chelmsford actually. But sure. um, I'll definitely come in and see you. So, but but listen, William, that has been absolutely fantastic. I think it's a really fascinating insight into into your approaches to grassroots to professional level um, to that that agile and uh, adaptable style of training has been fantastic. So thanks ever so much uh, for your time. No problem. My pleasure. Cheers.